You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 560. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jack, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 8th of March, 2023. A close call between departing and landing aircraft in Portland, Oregon. A battery caught fire on a spirit flight to Orlando. More news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 560 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds, on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining us from across the pond, his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Oh, hi there, Jeff. It's uh, an honor to be first in the queue. Uh, thanks very much from a very wintry England. Oh, yeah. I realized I got everything out of seniority order here, didn't I? My bad. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure she'll cut us some slack for that. Uh, speaking of her, from her lakeside studio in South, Doctor Skyniver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Doctor Steph. Nah, I quit. Oh no! Okay, he's like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just one. That was it. The last straw. The, the one. The last straw. She told last me last time. Can't, one more mistake, Jeff. That's I'm it. Out. I'm, I'm out. out. No, of course not. So, and you know, I don't really care. I'm just happy to be here and happy to talk to y'all. And let's uh, talk about some airplanes and things. It's gonna be a good show. Let's do that. And also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, newly certified A and P mechanic, old airplane enthusiast. An engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Tamacho. Hey, Captain Jeff. Uh, I'm glad to be back after a couple of this uh, weeks. Yeah, I'm glad you're with us again uh, in, in Kansas. And from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hi, Jeff. It seems so long since you and I have been doing some recording. It does feel that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have and, a good show, uh, you guys. Yeah. Okay. I'll uh, Thanks, be uh, listening Bye, to you in the control room. And uh, without further ado, we should probably now play the news bumper and get on with some news. 
stand by for news. Okay, let's start off with a Bass Aviation video, Real Aviation Communications. Our EPS 2974 Heavy is uh, silver pole for Finray. UPS 2974 Heavy, approximately turbulence, traffic holding a position as a heavy Boeing 767, runway 10 right, land. Portland, Oregon. Portland, runway uh, 10 right, UPS 2974. Okay, the airplane is going into position. Line up and wait. 10 right. UPS 2992 Heavy, wind 1403, flight 090, runway 10 right, close to takeoff. Heading 090, close to takeoff, 10 right, UPS 2994. final. Okay, two-mile final. Clear for takeoff. Not going very fast. Well, we're looking at the, <laughs> the simulated. We're not sure this is exactly what happened here, but it's an approximation. Uh-oh. You get 2992 heavy abort takeoff. Uh, traffic going around over the top of you. Abort takeoff. The guy in the tower is gone. UPS 2974 heavy, go around, climb, maintain 3,000, fly runway heading. Hey, don't worry, guys. I saw this uh, on a video a couple weeks ago. This is the way you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Going around, UPS 2974 heavy. I mean, that's what they all have to be doing in this point, right? Continue down the runway, turn right at Echo, remain the frequency. Are you able to taxi back, or do you need to stop for a while? We can taxi back. UPS 2992 Heavy, uh, Roger, turn right at Echo, right on Charlie, cross runway 3, taxi runway uh, 1 zero right, and uh, just remain the frequency, thank you. Right on Echo, right on Charlie, and uh, taxi runway 1 zero right, UPS uh, 2992 Heavy. UPS 2974 Heavy, climb maintain 5,000, fly heading of 180. 5,180, what was the reason for the delayed departure? Nobody says anything. Oh boy, quiet. Yeah, twenty nine seven four heavy contact uh, departure on one one eight point one. Yep. Okay. Um, twenty nine ninety two taxi back to the runway for departure, the one that was aborted the takeoff, and twenty nine seventy four was vectored back for another approach. Okay, that last statement or question um, that he posed, he didn't address it to the tower controller, nor did he address it to his fellow UPS pilots. And I'm wondering what you all think. Um, I kind of feel like he was basically uh, saying, like, this guy that was on the runway delayed his departure. What was the reason for that? But I don't know. I that don't was know. the implied question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it. what was the... Did we already talk about what the weather conditions were here? This was um, visual no, we conditions didn't. here. I, I don't. I don't think... know if I have that information. Do you? Um, okay. No, I, I. Oh, you don't. I don't. I don't think we have it in mm -hmm. our. Um, you know what? I could. Well, go ahead and talk, and I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, on, I mean, uh, so it might depend Herald. a little bit. You know, um, so kind of the same setup as um, the previous one with FedEx and Southwest, where you have traffic on relatively short final and um, traffic departing ahead of them. Um, I don't know what the weather conditions were, so uh, without knowing that, makes it a little bit trickier to work on some of the decision-making processes. But let's just assume that it's a beautiful VFR daytime flight that's happening here for the sake of, you know, um, for argument's sake and for discussion's sake. So in that case, everyone can kind of see what's unfolding here. Um, 
the traffic that's, uh, I forget which UPS flight it was, but the one that's departing should be able to see the traffic on short final and looking relatively close. Um, traffic on short final should be able to see, oh, hey, they're they're clear to take off. They should be just on the runway and rolling, and they didn't. So um, presumably everyone has a little bit more situational awareness in this case, but I think his question really was to exactly as you were kind of saying, Jeff, like, why, why did you have a delayed departure there? I think he's actually asking his company. That's uh, pilots. kind of the feeling I had as well. Yeah. Because I mean, now it <laughs> delays them. They were about to delay and they got to go around. Blah, blah, blah. Thanks a lot, pal. Yeah. That's basically if you're yeah, reading exactly. between the lines. Yeah. 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 Like, it's thanks for helping a, us out. It's been a long night. You know, I was ready for like taking a nap or going home. Mm -hmm. And now I have to go around and spend another 10, 15 minutes in the air. In the pattern. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, that's how <laughs> yeah. I read that question. Mm -hmm. that's I think you're exactly right there, you too. Um, interesting. Two miles is fairly tight but doable if you get on promptly and do a rolling takeoff. Um, that that should be, you know, feasible. So, But you don't never know what is quite going on in the cockpit of the guy that's lining up. Perhaps they got a ding and they just had to solve a little problem. You know, it could be lots of things that um, just made them come to a grinding halt. Uh, have a think about it. Oh, yeah, okay, we're good. Let's go. Um, but uh, I think uh, having, you know, had that delay in rolling, then I think it was a fair decision to send this guy around and uh, ordering an aircraft to board on the runway is always a dangerous thing. You never know quite how fast he's going. The tower might know if they might have a good guess, you know, by this point he's doing 80 knots or 100 knots. But any stop on the runway requires um, an element of risk involved. Pardon me. And the faster they go in, the, the higher the risk. Um, much rather send the guy around and then as soon as he's in the climb, give him a turn uh, and let the rolling aircraft take off. But I don't know. It's a tough one. Yeah, it is. Um, I looked in uh, the Aviation Herald and uh, this incident was not um, listed. So I don't know what the mm. weather was during this. Maybe somebody in our live audience might know. And well, if it was Portland, us. Maine, we'd know, but not Portland. Oregon. Yeah. Micah would tell us Portland, Maine. Correct. But <laughs> not Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, and, and you know, maybe it doesn't matter too much. It sounds like actually situational awareness was pretty good all around here. So a little bit different than the other scenario where it just seemed like everyone kind of knew but wasn't real worried about it um yeah i'm not sure you know without being there and seeing yeah. it firsthand but i might point out that this is probably one of the most common uh, mm -hmm. reasons for going around uh so this is actually quite a you know this is not an unusual event at all um but you're uh, particularly when you're trying to squeeze aircraft and get one off and get you in uh, sometimes uh, you just don't, in the UK, you may not get a clearance uh, in time or um, the aircraft taking off may just have a long takeoff roll and not clear the runway. So it's quite common to be uh, sent around, certainly in my experience. 
Yeah. And I mean, if this was a busy time of day there, if it was during a push or something, there can be, I mean, you know, you do the best with what you have, especially as the controller, you're trying to get aircraft in, have them take off, keep everyone rolling. Um, you know, and occasionally the timing's just not going to work out quite, quite right for, you know, one small reason or another, but good outcome here. Yeah. Do you guys ever get, uh, and 121 operations, do you ever get clear for takeoff without delay uh, instructions? Yeah. yeah. Is there a, I mean, like to me, in my airplane, that means uh, essentially no stopping, right? Like uh, in the C-47, we would stop, you know, we'd slow down to get the tailwheel locked. But is there a standard for that? Because I assume you guys have like cleanup item, like lineup items to do on the runway. You or do, are you but, actually uh, going around the corner? and It's going to take you 15, 20 seconds to get around the corner and get the aircraft lined up. You're not going to do that in a hurry because as soon as you try and turn a, a big aircraft across the piano keys, that nose wheel starts to judder and skip, and uh, it makes an awful racket, and uh, it spoils your turn on. So uh, particularly if those piano keys are in any of the paint there, the runway numbers are wet so you're not going to try and do that fast but as soon as you get the fuselage swinging around and you get a bit of momentum going you can uh, when you get within a few degrees of the runway heading you can already advance the engines up to their um uh, their initial setting about 70 percent uh and um you, everything should be done and you just say take it on the roll yep okay you know um, and call stabilize and off you go. So it, it does happen quickly. And even if there's no rush, we frequently do rolling takeoffs just because they're a prompt way to get the uh, aircraft going, particularly if you had a little delay on the gate or something, you're, a bit, you're off a bit late. It saves a few seconds, gets the show on the road. Yep. Uh, Sam Dawson says at, uh, at Tulip. Um, his outfit, his airline. Yeah. No Tulip. items are done on the runway. Okay. Um, so I think that there's, there is some kind of a parameter, um, an air traffic controller would probably know the answer. I think it's like either 90 seconds or three minutes or something like that is a, a typical amount of time that you can take. And then if they want you to not dilly dally around, as you mentioned, uh, then they'll say something like cleared for expedited takeoff or you know be ready to go there are several different ways for them to kind of express the fact yeah. that Clear they don't want you to no delay yeah clear for takeoff no delay that kind of thing um and assuming you think you might need to delay you should probably say unable yeah or yeah, yeah before you even take right. the runway say you know yeah, you know just stay right where you are don't right. don't take your feet off the brakes or for instance sometimes we will like this morning coming out of uh, burlington vermont we uh, were de-iced and when we do that, we either have to do uh, in individual engine run-ups uh, taxing out to the runway, or we can alternatively uh, do a static takeoff and run up the engines to 50% N1 for 10 seconds, and then continue with the takeoff roll at that point. And when we do that, um, I usually will say, we're going to be on the runway for a few seconds for an engine run-up, and then we're, just to let the tower controller kind of know, okay, this is something that's going to happen here, and this is not going to throw me off. I mean, the whole point of a lot of this is communication. So, you know, you don't yeah. need to be overly detailed in what you're saying, but you need to make um, important things known back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah so that's that answer that for you uh, camacho yep all right awesome all right, let's uh, go to this next item uh, in the news segment. Uh, Spirit Airlines flight makes emergency landing in Florida due to fire. Ten hospitalized. Okay, this is from WFLA.com. Uh, a Spirit Airlines flight headed for Orlando was forced to make an emergency landing in Jacksonville, Florida on Wednesday after a fire broke out inside the cabin. And NBC affiliate WTLV reported that Spirit Airlines Flight 259 took off from Dallas at around 2 p.m., landed at Jacksonville International Airport just before 4 o'clock. The airline said the plane was diverted after a battery caught on fire in an overhead bin, filling the cabin with smoke. A guest's personal item was what ignited the blaze. Hmm. Personal item. I was right across How from personal? A, yeah, that's when I saw that, I'm thinking, why did they call it a personal item? Hmm. In quotes. Yeah. It's in quotes. Uh, I was right across from a luggage bin, and, and, and sadly, it's not that provocative, actually. I was right across from a luggage bin and saw smoke coming out of it, and I wasn't sure what it was. And then all of a sudden, just a ton of smoke came out, according to passenger Carrie Arakawa. Uh, crew members and passengers sprung into action. She said it reportedly took around 20 minutes to put the fire out. There was a retired fireman uh, that uh, jumped up and a flight crew came in and they tried to put water on it, she told WTLV. And then another guy went and got a bucket because I think the firemen reached in and grabbed it and they got it put out. Uh, WJXT spoke to retired New York firefighter Rocco uh, Ciarciella who said he was left with burns on his fingers after putting the fire out. He claimed a vape battery started the blaze. It was starting. Vaping's, vaping's bad for you. Vaping Stop is. Stop vaping. Okay. Mm-hmm. Public service announcement. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you you want to go in, into any more detail about vaping? No. Okay, just not good for you. Don't do it. It was starting to drop uh, altitude and I guess the airplane, and somebody yelled, fire! Smoke was, uh, did you like that dramatic? Uh, that was, that fire! Was dramatic- and automatic oh, reconstruction, very impressive. <laughs> my neighbors don't think that there's a fire. They're, in the they're gonna be like coming out in the hallway, like, <laughs> oh, oh no, where's the fire? Or they think you're gonna fire a gun. Somebody's gonna pull the fire thing. <laughs> or fire a gun. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and uh, what it was was a battery powered vape tied to a battery charging inside the compartment. Very dangerous. And it ignited a piece of luggage next to it. Uh, one person was taken to the hospital, according to the Jacksonville Fire and Rescue Department. That's what they said initially. But as time went on, more people realized they could probably get something out of us, and they reported feeling <laughs> ill from the smoke. It was oh, you some odd uh, opinion commentary there. I was embellishing article. it a little bit, but come on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is what happened. I, it's right, yeah. <clears throat> I think I got the black lung. <clears throat> <laughs> Oh, I can't breathe. Uh, It was not until almost six o'clock that more people started feeling bad. (laughs) And we then turned it into what we call an MCI level one. Uh, That's the uh, JRFD captain, Eric Proswimmer. Uh, crew members were among the 10 people taken to the hospital. They're going, we're getting on this, in on this too. Uh, with uh, a couple l- days off of work coming up. <laughs> no, Good times ahead. With non life threatening injuries. Um, okay. So, hey, this battery went out of control and started a fire. They got it put out. And uh, 
a lot of smoke and several people or probably stand and make a considerable amount of money from it. <laughs> so this is this is actually reasonably important. Yeah. If you're, you know, transporting things in your luggage that are not Personal readily items. accessible to you, you probably don't need to have them plugged into your battery pack. What? Because those things get really hot when you do that sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just putting that out there in case you were unaware. You know, I'm glad we have Steph here with us today because she's like all kinds of public service announcements coming. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. We'll just call this the public service announcement show. That's <laughs> right. what I'm here for. I was going to just mention uh, one in, in that um, if you've got firefighter training, uh, I'm not suggesting this is the case with this fine gentleman, but if you know something about putting fire out, mm -hmm. just bear in mind that you may not be familiar with the equipment that's available on an on most aircraft. Now, I don't know about Spirit, but uh, I do know about my airline, and uh, the firefighting equipment the cabin crew have available to them would prevent you from burning your fingers if you tried to retrieve something that was very hot or on fire uh, from a hat rack. And if you're unaware of that, you might dive in and get your fingers burnt. Whereas if you coordinated with the cabin crew, even if you were willing to do it and they weren't, you could you could don the fireproof gloves and uh, do that. And uh, they might also have a special fireproof bag that you can put the burning item into and then add water rather than putting water into the into so the overhead bin. I don't have anything official, and correct me if I'm wrong if anyone else knows, but I heard that in this case, for some reason, they did not have one of those bags to put the oh, okay. hot slash well, burning item uh, into. I, 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 did anyone else hear that? I feel like I saw that somewhere. Item. I could be completely it, it wrong. They may have had the it, and that's probably what they did, but I don't know why else they would be putting a bunch of water on, you know, Well, that is battery. In, into the hat rack. Yeah, yeah, I don't know either, but... Uh, Certainly, uh, I mean, some airlines <laughs> just use the ice bucket or whatever. Yeah. You know, they yeah. pitch up with the ice bucket. And you, but you, there are usually gloves and smoke hoods, et cetera, mm -hmm. available to fight fires. So um, you don't have to be a brave chap and dive in with your fingers. I'm wondering if he just, like, just dove into action, as she said, and, and uh, didn't give the flight crew a chance to, like, get all that. He might, he might well have done, but yeah. being a firefighter, I would hope he would have... Just sat back for a second and assessed the situation. Just a reaction mm -hmm. to the situation. Um, yeah. <laughs> and those um, those vapors, uh, vapors, is that the right name for a, um, a vaping fumes? device? Vape. Oh, uh, oh They've got a heating vapes. element as part yes. of them. Vapes. So they've mm -hmm. got yeah. a double risk there because you've got both the battery that can spontaneously combust, uh, particularly if it's damaged. And, of course, uh, if it gets uh, the button that turns it on gets pushed or the heating element runs away, that can then cause the fire. They're not particularly safe bits of kit necessarily. And they're bad for you. Yeah, they're not. They're not good for you. Well, there speaks the doctor. Yeah. It whispers the doctor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, that, was try, that was my um, go at subliminal messaging. Ah, very for anyone, good. Um, you know, like falling asleep to the podcast. They'll just hear yeah. that in like their subconscious. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you. Number, number C. All right. C. Let's do this. Uh, a preliminary investigation report from the National Transportation Safety Board. 
on the 4th of February, 2023, at about 640 Central Standard Time, FedEx Flight 1432, a Boeing 767-32LF, and Southwest Airlines Flight 708, a Boeing 737-79P, were involved in a runway incursion with overflight that resulted in loss of separation at the Austin Bergstrom International Airport, AUS, Austin, Texas. And we've talked about that uh, a few times already on our show. And uh, let's see, was there anything that really uh, stood out on this, Liz, that uh, this preliminary report? There really was, Jeff. Okay. Um, Let's see. I I think at some point I I read that uh, they determined that it was really not a lot going on. It was pretty low uh, activity um, during that time frame wasn't busy at all. And, um, let's see, I'm trying to find, I didn't, I wasn't, because this is a PDF, I wasn't able to highlight stuff. So, um, but we all know this story. Uh, the, uh, FedEx was on a three mile final told Southwest kind of very similar to that UPS thing we just covered. Um, except this, in this case, they were, uh, running a category three, very low viz, uh, situation. And um, I think in our in our uh, feedback se- section, there is some a little bit more information about exactly what happened and what point the seven sixty seven pilots. Oh wait, no, I take that back. It's right here. Um, and this is some interesting stuff because we were wondering whether or not the FedEx crew could see the Southwest aircraft, mm-hmm. and uh, it turns out that they actually did. And that's what initiated the go around. Uh, when, uh, FedEx 1432 was about a 0.7 mile final, the local controller queried Southwest 708 to confirm that they were on the roll to which the captain of the uh, Southwest flight said, uh, rolling now, according to the captain of FedEx 1432, he noted that at an altitude of about 150 feet, the first officer called go around after visually seeing Southwest 708 at approximately 1,000 to 1,500 feet from the approach end of the runway. So uh, that means, yeah, clearly at that point, 150 feet above the ground, and they're only 1,500 feet, you know, into their roll. They said, "This is not going to work. We're going to we're going to hit them if we continue to land on the runway." And that's why, I guess, the FedEx uh, pilot, you know, yelled out, you know, "We're going around. You know, abort your takeoff." Um, so I thought that was interesting. I, they actually did see at the last minute, the, uh, Southwest jet on the runway. And it sounds like at the time that Southwest, or I'm sorry, that FedEx, um, called their go around Southwest heard that and estimated they were somewhere between 80 knots and V1. So, mm-hmm. and they decided so not to, not to abort. Right. Yeah, that's pretty tight, isn't it? 150 feet from landing, and you see an aircraft that could be as close as a thousand feet in front of you on the runway. It's too yeah, tight. that's not yeah. nice. Yeah. Not good. And I think he was just going into the FedEx guys were just going into self-preservation mode by oh, sure. probably saying something that a controller should say, but they felt it necessary to say themselves because they were thinking, "We're going to die if we." If that guy takes off and yeah. flies right into us. Yep. So. Yeah. I, I don't know that I can. 
Should they have said that? We can argue that all day long. Probably but I don't not. Know that I blame but, blame them for saying it. Yeah. Honestly, I probably would have. Well, said particularly the since you've got very little time to assess the right. collision potential, you haven't really got time to to watch the aircraft to see how fast he's accelerating. Right. You just got to see a picture and make a decision. Yep. All right. Let me go over. Another preliminary report. Um, this from the Aviation Herald. Um, it re- involves, and actually, this has been out for a while, and we somehow missed. I remember reading this, and I forgot to uh, clip I it. I did highlight it and Jeff, put it. Um, thank you, Liz. Um, put it in the um, in the news segment because this is significant. That's the uh, the Nepal uh, ATR seventy two that crashed uh, uh, near the Pokhara International Airport. Uh, Victor November Papa Romeo. So, and you know, it was just like, well, what happened? It just like fell out of the sky. Don't understand. Okay, well, here is some information that will kind of uh, point to what probably happened. Um, so they were operating between Kathmandu and Pokhara International. Uh, the same flight crew operated two sectors between the two airports uh, earlier in the morning. The accident occurred during a visual approach for runway 12 at, uh, or 1-2 at uh, Victor November Papa Romeo. This was the third flight by the crew members on that day. The flight was operated by two captains. Well, there you go. Uh, one captain was in the process of obtaining aerodrome fam- familiarization for operating into Pokhara because this it's a new airport. Uh, they I just recently moved from the old one to the new Pokhara International. And the other captain was the instructor pilot. The captain being familiarized was occupying the left-hand seat and was the pilot flying. The instructor pilot occupying the right-hand seat was pilot monitoring. The takeoff cruise and descent to Pokhara was normal during the first contact with Tower. The air traffic controller assigned the runway 30 to land, but during the latter phases of flight, crew uh, the crew requested and received clearance from ATC to land on runway 12. Uh, the aircraft descended from 6,500 feet at five miles away, joined the downwind track for runway 12 to the north of the runway. The aircraft was visually identified by air traffic control during the approach. Pilots extended the flaps to the 15 degrees position, selected the landing gear lever to the down position. The takeoff setting was selected on the power management panel. Then the pilot flying disconnected the or disengaged the autopilot system at an altitude of 721 feet above ground level. The pilot flying then called for flaps 30, and then the pilot monitoring replied, the instructor, flaps 30 and descending. The flight data recorder did not record any flap surface movement at the time. Instead, the propeller rotation speed of both engines decreased simultaneously to less than 25%, and the torque started decreasing to 0%, which is consistent with both propellers going into the feathered condition. On the cockpit voice recorder, uh, area microphone, a single master caution chime was recorded. Uh, Then the flight crew carried out the before landing checklist before starting the left turn onto the base leg. During that time, the power lever angle increased from 41 to 44%. At this point, uh, the uh, propeller rotation speed of both propellers were, was recorded as non-computed data in the 
FDR and the torque of both engines were still at 0%. When propellers are in feather, they are not producing thrust. When both propellers were feathered, the investigation team observed that both engines of the aircraft were running flight idle condition during the event to prevent overtorque. As per the FDR data, all the recorded parameters related to engines uh, did not show any anomaly. At um, 10.56.50, when the radio altitude callout for 500 feet was enunciated, another click sound was heard. The aircraft reached a maximum bank angle of 30 degrees at this altitude. The recorded uh, propeller rotation and torque remained invalid. The yaw damper disconnected four seconds later. The pilot flying consulted the pilot monitoring on whether to continue the left turn, and the pilot monitoring uh, replied to continue the turn. Subsequently, the pilot flying asked the pilot monitoring on whether to continue to, to uh, descend, and the pilot monitoring responded, it was not necessary and instructed to apply a little power. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. Okay, uh, another click was heard, followed by the flaps surface movement to 30 degrees. When ATC gave the clearance for landing, the pilot flying mentioned twice that there was no power coming from the engines. Uh, the power levers were uh, advanced first to 62 degrees, then to a maximum power position. And then it was followed by a click sound uh, one second after the click sound, the aircraft was in at the initiation of its last turn at 368 feet above ground. The high-pressure turbine speed of both engines increased from 73 to 77%. It's noted that the pilot flying, the guy that was getting checked out, he handed over control of the aircraft to the pilot monitoring, the instructor. Um, and the pilot monitoring, who was previously the pilot flying, repeated again that there was no power coming from the engines. When the aircraft was at 311 feet AGL, the stick shaker was activated, warning the crew that the aircraft angle of attack increased up to the stick shaker threshold. A second sequence of stick shaker warning was activated when the aircraft banked towards the left abruptly. I think that was kind of what we saw in that video uh, the, that some uh, witness had taken. Thereafter, the radio alt altitude alert for 200 feet was enunciated. Uh, the cricket sound and stick shaker ceased, and uh, finally the sound of impact was heard on the CBR. Um, so, seems to me again, it's not, it's not the report yet, but it seems to me that the pilot, uh, the instructor pilot, pilot monitoring, instead of putting the flaps to thirty, probably didn't look down, probably just felt for what he thought was the flap lever. And uh, instead, moved the propeller. What would you call that stuff? The, the prop lever into the prop lever into feather. You could pull. Up, I, I so I don't know um, on the ATR, but um, they could have moved the props into feather if the if they're if those controls are ne are nearby each other. Um, so I mean, I can only really draw on the aircraft that I fly. Specifically, thinking about the the caravan. You know, we've got power prop. Um, then we've got fuel cut off, and then flaps in that order on the pedestal. So um, what a couple of us do for putting in flap settings, <laughs> because it's on the other side of the fuel cutoff lever, where your hands move from uh, power level and prop condition, you have to skip over that to get to the flaps. Mm -hmm. So you visually look, if, if you can at all, hand on the flaps, and a couple of us say flaps are flat because the, the actual 
control surface is a little flat tab that you move. And the other ones are very different shape. They're kind of round or something obviously different. So just a couple little different checks to make sure that you're moving the correct, um, correct levers. Mm -hmm. In our case, we're more worried about potentially moving the fuel cutoff, but you'd have to actually move over the detent and back. It would be difficult to do, but theoretically something that if you just, you know, were caught off guard or something weird was going on, potentially could happen. Yeah, I watched a uh, video um, assessment of this, and indeed those two levers, the flap lever and the prop levers, are next door uh, to each other. So the prop levers are look. the ones that are fully closed there, yeah. Mark 1 and 2. Yep. Uh, and then um, the one with a obviously flap-shaped, um, but you have to have your hand wrapped around it to really To know. They're, they're, they're much more similarly shaped than um, what we have going on in the caravan. Yeah, um, but a similar so proximity. The, I, I can yeah. see exactly how that happened. He's not That's looking not down. He's just looking outside. Nope. You know, clearing nope. and you know, nope. seeing how he's doing. And if doing they're moving it. to flaps thirty, that's kind of the last detent there for the flaps. So you're going to pull that lever all the way back. If you pull the prop condition lever all the way back, wow. presumably pulling it into feather there. Yeah, and then you're not going to produce any torque. And, because, and, uh, because and then it doesn't matter what you do with the power lever. <laughs> you're not going to. Yeah, because it's torque. not going to do anything, right? No, it's in feather. Yeah. Props in feather. Yeah. It's just going to get and louder. Because uh, these guys <laughs> yeah. are, are being checked out on a new approach and you've got a new captain trying to make judgments and the instructor is trying to talk his way around the final turn and look at everyone's looking out the window to see how mm -hmm. the approach is going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, unless the instructor is going to look in, as he really should do, uh, and perhaps he wasn't happy to do so at that moment and just fumble the lever, but having... Um, set the, the uh, props back to feather instead of setting flat 30 he subsequently selected flat 30 so I'm a little surprised it didn't occur didn't to him notice that, that hang on a minute I've already done this what else did I do yeah I wonder if he it just sounds, did like it does a sound quick, a lot different too, like a quick but, check I mean, and then oh shoot I thought I put the flaps to 30 I didn't oh let yeah. me do that again but didn't yeah. notice that the props lever was yeah, yeah I'm a, I was a little surprised that there was not more identification of the loss of thrust. Right. Why mm -hmm. did we lose uh, thrust here? If we're pushing I, I the power lever thought, up. Yeah. yeah, I would have thought that you would have, your body would have felt, mm -hmm. you know, because like when you go to feather, it's zero thrust. Yeah. It's uh, a very different feel for how the aircraft flies and it sounds different. Yeah. A lot. Sounds, well, in yeah. the airplanes that I've flown, it sounds way different. Yeah. Um, that, that surprised me a little bit. Now, yeah. I don't. I mean, the were they maybe coming in a, a kind of a high angle and low power, kind of like you don't want to have any a lot of power on, and maybe that kind of contributed to the like lack uh, of sense of yeah. the fact maybe, that you don't have the I'll, power where you should have. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I was kind of trying to think through it, and if you're at like a steep angle where you have the power pulled back, um, in that scenario, the propellers are actually acting more like an air brake. Mm -hmm. And so if you feather them, I would actually expect you to maybe get a little more performance. Yeah, performance. Yeah. So they must have been they must not have been on a high angle approach because that doesn't make sense to me because um hmm. yeah. Yeah, I have no experience. Yeah, because if you're on a very steep approach, yeah. you might, you know, prop all the way full as opposed to feather to act as that brake. You can actually do beta approaches yeah. um in some aircraft that way. Yep. 
the other point I was going to make was if that instructor's used to sitting in the captain's seat, those two levers are in the opposite order mm -hmm. than they are when he's in the left-hand seat. Now, I, when I was, uh, you know, done quite a few years as a captain, I did a few trips in the right-hand seat, the FO seat, and I found it quite disorientating, the fact that everything was on the centre console was now backwards. And I'm just wondering if he just didn't appreciate which lever he was going to because he was used to sitting in the captain's seat mm -hmm. and the flat lever was the furthest away from him. No, as thanks opposed for, to thanks sitting for mentioning in the that first officer's seat where it's the closest to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I agree with um, Nick C. Like, I'm a little surprised that they didn't do more. They had time to kind of troubleshoot why there was no thrust coming from being produced by the engines, why there was no torque. Yeah. Guess we'll never know. Mm, nope. Well, let's do uh, F next. And this is from the Aero News Network. Uh, the NTSB issues a preliminary report on the Honolulu runway incursion. We talked about this uh, either last or maybe a couple of shows ago. Yeah, a couple of shows ago, I guess. Um, so you'll recall that a Boeing 777-200 uh, United operating um, under Part 121, blah, 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 uh, United Flight 384 and a Cessna 208B Grand Caravan operating under Part 135. Uh, they were flying on the uh, parallel runway. Uh, really, they had nothing to do with this, except that we're there at the time. Uh, the... Um, 384 was coming in from Denver to Honolulu. And uh, let's see, visual meteorological conditions prevailed at the time of the incident. According to the United 777 flight crew, the taxi takeoff, departure, and cruise phases of the flight were uneventful at the time of the incident. The uh, second in command, the first officer, was the pilot flying the 777. The pilot in command captain was um, the pilot monitoring. Approximately 70 nautical miles out, they planned the top of descent point. The flight crew commenced preparations for arrival and approach. After the two pilots obtained and reviewed the Honolulu Automated Terminal Information Service, the ATIS broadcast, company notes, notices to airmen. Ooh, they, now this is from the NTSB, not, 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 ding, 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 ding. Notices to air missions and the Germain arrival. I've never flown that one, the Germain. The Jermaine one. Um, landing and taxi diagrams, they configured the configured the Sorry. aircraft for the expected arrival and approach. The United Air Crew noted ongoing construction at Honolulu had rendered runway 8 left unavailable for landing traffic. United Airlines company operational notes indicate that the Boeing 777 aircraft are not permitted to perform land and hold short operations. LASO, L-A-H-S-O, on runway 4 right, which is the runway they were assigned. Uh, they set forth, uh, let's see, commencing descent. They had briefed the flight's planned approach as the RNAV GPS to runway 8 right. Okay, that's the one that's way out, uh, pretty much in the, out in the water, although the runway itself is above the water. Uh, taking into consideration the unlikely possibility that Honolulu would issue a last-minute runway reassignment, the pilots retrieved the landing data for runways 8 right and 4 right. United uh, flights... Uh, Pilot in command stated that after the aircraft had leveled at flight level 230, the Honolulu Control Facility directed the 777 to proceed directly to Bamboo, Bambo at 10,000 feet. 
Uh, they switched frequencies to Hon- Honolulu Approach and checked in. They told them that they had uh, received the latest ATIS broadcast and understood. They normally don't say that like that. Honolulu Approach Control assigned the United Flight a heading of 220 degrees, advised the flight crew to expect a visual approach to four right. Flight crew acknowledged the transmission, and the pilot again, uh, pilot in command, the captain again, advised Honolulu approach that United's operation specs forbid lasso operations on Honolulu's runway four right. The second in command initiated the descent, reviewed and loaded the approach to runway four right into the triple seven flight management computer. She indicated she changed the aircraft's landing flap setting uh, from twenty five to thirty, and its auto brake setting from two to three. She then, it's a a shorter runway than the eight right. She then briefed the approach, reviewed the exit plan from four right, confirming that the aircraft would either roll the runway's full length or, speed permitting, make a left turn on a taxiway kilo. Uh, Let's see. And then there was a, they're talking about the um, uh, the Cessna 208 on the parallel uh, and the fact that Tower was telling them that the 777 was on the right and you know, caution weight turbulence. Um, and uh, so the United flight, uh, land, they landed on trip, um, runway four right, activated the thrust reversers, began manual braking at approximately 110 knots. As the 777 approached 80, the flight's pilot command, the captain made the 80 knot call out, and the second in command stowed the thrust reversers and slowed the aircraft to less than 35 knots. At this time, the second uh, in command, the uh, first officer uh, offered to transfer control of the aircraft to the pilot command. As briefed, pilot in command took control of the 777 using the aircraft's tiller to initiate a left turn onto taxiway kilo. Um, Information obtained by the NTSB's ATC group indicated that about 1609 uh, Honolulu Standard Time, the tower inquired about whether they had kilo. Got kilo? United 384 responded, turn left on Kilo. Honolulu Tower instructed the uh, flight, the United flight, to hold short of runway 4 left. They acknowledged the hold short instruction. The uh, United's pilot command, the captain, later stated that he was surprised by the hold short instruction in so much as he had informed Honolulu Approach Control that UAL's operation specifications forbid lasso operations on Honolulu runway 4 right. Pilot command reported he had momentarily lost situational awareness as the 777 exited runway 4 right. As he believed, Honolulu's runway 4 right and runway 4 left were separated by a greater distance than they actually are. Uh, The pilot command stated that he had been concerned about getting clear of the landing runway and uh, focused primarily on taxiing the 777 beyond the hold short line between runway 4 right and taxiway kilo. Um, Okay, so... Question there, Jeff. Yeah. Um. Land and hold short, that's not the same to me <laughs> yes. as hold short of a runway. You are correct, sir, and that's we, exactly... We all have the same okay. question. We're all thinking, wait a minute, that's not lasso procedure. That's... Is land and hold short yeah. on the runway? Yes. For... Correct. As opposed to uh, your clear cross or your your clear taxi on taxi kilo and then hold, hold short of runway zero four runway right. actually yeah four actually not four left the lot the lo- i looked it up on my handy dandy um jepson what do you call this thing uh flight Chart deck pro 
application, and I, I didn't uh, get a, 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 a an image of this, but essentially um, the, the four right never intersects four left because they're parallel runways. Uh, it's eight left that they uh, the lasso procedures have you holding short of, which is like 6,200 6, and some odd feet. And they elected to turn off at Kilo. And that, as you mentioned, Captain Nick and Steph, you're thinking, and probably Nick Camacho as well. Well, that's not land and hold short operations mm-hmm. that you're mm-hmm. talking about here. And that's holding short of another runway. That's that's not the same thing. No, that's perfectly allowed mm-hmm. um, based on what they described United's um, operating procedures to be. The other thing, um, when we first talked about this um, incident that caught my attention is that on the taxiway diagram, that particular confluence of um, taxiways and runways, mm-hmm. um, there's a little circle around it mm-hmm. and a little hot line spot. over that says HS2. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a hotspot area. So it's a known, you know, kind of problematic area at risk for incursions and other such events. Yes. Yep. Which I'm surprised was not part of their brief if they were thinking they were going to perhaps exit at kilo and, and given the yeah. length of the triple seven furthermore and finally if if you are worried about your ass hanging over the runway you've just vacated or your nose going over a runway which has an aircraft landing on it which one are you going to choose well, neither. I'd roll to the end of the runway and do something different. Yeah, but well, that, if that's you did turn, you know, <laughs> the most important part is not going if you, if, yeah. onto. Yeah. yeah, if you've taken that next, high speed, yes, I, I I say it's better to leave your backside hanging over mm-hmm. the runway that you've just turned off than it is to stick nose. your nose on the runway that somebody's landing on. Agree. because they knew that guy was down there because they were told to. Stay visual with them, visual right? Separation. They mm-hmm. should have been aware that there was a, the yeah. caravan on the on the parallel runway. And finally, I think uh, uh, to me, the most one of the most important things is that they were never given the instruction for land and hold short operations because he clearly stated that he was not. They could not do that. And so obviously, the tower knew that they weren't going to hold short of the land and yeah. but left. as Captain Nick, yeah, rightly said, that's land and hold short eight left. Yeah. That's the only but, way but you get a land and hold they didn't even have to do short. that. They were not, no. That was not their clearance. It was clear to land Correct. on four right. They could have used every inch of that runway, exactly. including crossing over eight left. Because I think eight left, as I said, construction was going on. Eight left wasn't even open. So, but that, that regardless of that, they were not given clearance to land and hold short of runway eight left. They were given clearance to land four right. So there was no reason for him to just all of a sudden, maybe... At the transfer control point, he goes, okay. Yeah, and that was something I was going to bring up. I mean, it's, it's not something we ever did on my airline. Uh, I was wondering if, if it happened on yours because it's an area where the the guy that's now going to taxi you clear of the runway isn't choosing his own turnoff. The FO who's doing the landing is the one that's breaking the aircraft for a turnoff. So w- when you're handing control, handed control or you take over control to in that changeover, you're not necessarily well prepared for the turnoff that you suddenly arrived at because you're not choosing it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of aircraft don't have tillers on both sides. 
I know. Yeah, understood. Yeah. But that, uh, that doesn't matter yeah. in this case. Oh, okay. It's, in I other words, you're saying, like, just because, now, I don't know, it doesn't say that she had used, um, like, nose wheel steering with the rudder and started, like, mm -hmm. turning that direction. It doesn't state that. So I'm assuming that did not happen. They were still going straight down the runway. And I think that the captain just got caught off guard, like, oh, we're, we're slowing down a lot faster than I thought we were. We can just go ahead and take Kilo instead of going all the way down to the end of four right. And our taxi route back to our gate is going to be a lot longer. So I'm just going to take the shortcut here and just didn't really think it through. The fact that the distance between those two runways is very short and there's really not a lot of room for a 210 foot long runway. I mean, uh, airplane to fit on Kilo and hold short of four left without yeah. the tail sticking out on the uh, runway behind you. I mean, in theory, they could have taxied down eight runway eight, couldn't mm -hmm. they? Yeah. Which they, is just beyond Kilo. They could have continued crossing eight left. I don't know exactly what type the of construction was happening the, on eight left. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they but obviously, was, he didn't probably didn't want to do that since it was going to add you know a lot of taxi time back. I'm guessing. Yeah, especially if Kilo was an easy exit to make for them. The narrative. Yeah, it's a, it's a much faster way to get to the um, terminal area to get to use Kilo, um, but the narrative says that the reason they were, had planned initially to ran, land on runway eight left, which is the closest one to all the terminals and everything else, the inboard runway, except because due to construction it was not open, so they landed on four right, and they could have gone all the way to the end of four right, turned left on. Um, Charlie or Alpha, I guess, and then back around. Again, I don't have the exact thing there, but you can see. Yeah, I can't really tell there, Jeff. No. Much. Well, here, let me do this yeah. then. It, it would have it would have added more time. Yeah. Um, here. That's better. Yep. Yep, got it. There's no reason for them to take Kilo. They could have gone all the way down. That All that green was theirs. They were not told to hold short of anything. Yeah, it's not a, a huge amount of runway they would have had to add to their landing roll. Mm -mm. Although, like it would have uh, taken them half an hour to taxi back. Just throw this in here, too, because there was that inquiry from the tower whether they were going to be able to make kilo or to, got kilo. So they're like, oh, yeah, we got kilo. Yeah, because they, you know, they were lo less than nonchalant. 35 knots, so they were pretty slow. Yeah. They were just crawling yeah. at that point. So like, oh, yeah, they want us to take kilo. Yeah. Sure, yeah, no problem. That makes sense for them to ask that. But, uh, hmm. okay. Interesting. Well, yeah, very interesting. Okay. And like I said, you know, we kind of touched on this before, but for the, the caravan, it was very much a non-event, even though technically this is, you know, incursion. But mm -hmm. Yeah, because they mentioned that they always use Echo. You know, they, yeah. they always pull off way, and they don't use a lot of runway. No. Okay. Okay. Um, Last but not least. All right, let's uh, let's do a Canadian thing here. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a sad Canadian if we have to. story. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> this is from this is from the Globe and Mail dot com, or uh, also says uh, Morgan Lowry, Montreal, the Canadian Press. Is that the same thing, Liz? The Globe and no, Mail. No, the Globe and Mail is a Toronto newspaper, so it's the oh. newspaper National Record, and I guess he okay. picked up reporting from. Canadian okay, so Press. Toronto's. Website picked up the um, Montreal Canadian Press uh, story. Um, a fatal crash near old Montreal in 2021 of a small plane towing a marriage proposal banner was caused by several factors, including weather and engine trouble. 
the TSB of Canada concluded in a report released on Wednesday. The lone passenger died and the pilot was badly hurt when a Cessna 172M pulling a banner reading, Will You Marry Me? crashed near. I wonder if they had a question mark on the banner or not. They don't in this story here, and that bothers me. Um, crashed near the Concord Bridge of Montreal's. If people that know me know that that really does bother me. Um, Montreal's Ile Saint Helene. Ile Exactly. On October 2nd, 2021, the safety board cited a combination of factors, including weather, engine trouble, and pilot decision making to explain how a flight that was only supposed to last eight minutes went so wrong. Investigators said the plane was flying over the St. Lawrence River when the engine first began to sputter. Pilot prepared for an emergency, emergency landing on the Concord Bridge, only to find it full of concrete construction barriers. He then tried to land on nearby Pierre Dupuy, Dupuy, Pierre Dupuy, Dupuy, Dupuy. Dupuy. <laughs> Avenue, with tragic results. Now I see why Liz picked this story for me. The aircraft's left wing grazed <laughs> some treetops. The aircraft began to cartwheel, and then it struck the ground. The report said a post-impact fire broke out just under a minute after impact. The badly injured pilot managed to escape the wreckage, but was unable to rescue the passenger, who remained trapped inside. While the report found no signs of mechanical engine failure in the plane, it concluded that rainy and overcast weather conditions were favorable to ice building up in the plane's carburetor. Given the amount of ice that was quite likely in the carburetor when the carburetor heat was turned on, the melted ice entered the engine, causing an additional loss of power. Weather conditions forced the pilot to fly at an altitude of 500 feet above sea level, rather than the planned 1,200 feet giving him little time to react when something went wrong. The flight was bound by visual flight rules, uh, which state that the pilot should be able to keep visual reference to the surface and have visibility of at least three miles. The report said that the pilot decided to take off despite knowing about the poor conditions, likely because of time constraints and what the TSB called plan continuation bias. There you go, Steph. Uh, which makes a person reluctant to alter their plans despite the changing conditions. Weather forecasts indicated unfavorable conditions, making it difficult to meet the minimum requirements for a VFR flight. However, the pilot decided to take off and proceed with the flight at an altitude of 500 feet above sea level, likely under the influence of an unconscious cognitive bias and the time constraints to complete the flight. When the pilot held an appropriate license that was obtained in 2006, the report concluded, no, while the pilot held an appropriate license, that was obtained in 2006. The report concluded that neither he nor the passenger should have been in the air that day. Regulations stipulate that passengers accompanying pilots who are carrying out aerial work, such as towing banners, are only allowed if their presence is essential or with special permission, which the TSB said was not granted in this case. Furthermore, the pilot's medical certificate had expired one day before the crash, meaning that he should not have been allowed to fly. Okay, that... I don't know how significant that is. But, that's, uh, uh, that's that's insult to injury. Well, yeah, to exactly. Very serious injury, mostly. What do you think, uh, Steph and uh, Nixie? Uh, you guys are Nick, our I'll GA. Let Nixie go first on this one. People that's and carburetor ice. You can talk what to us about that? carburetor icing. Uh, in great yeah, detail. I think. Well, so you know, for people who know understand how a carburetor works, you're it's basically a venturi. You're uh, accelerating the air, and one thing that I think people get very tripped up by 
when they first start flying carbureted airplanes is that carburetor ice is um, it's uh, the susceptibility to carburetor ice is based on the environmental conditions you're in, but it's not like super cold. It's not always the temperature. It doesn't have to be like freezing and icing and you can still right. get carburetor ice yeah, because I mean, of how the air temperature drops as the air goes yeah, through that's that exactly narrowed it, space right. and you get that venturi. Yeah. yeah. As the airspeed speeds up, the temperature decreases. So what you're looking for is actually a freezing temperature at the high velocity you see in the carburetor. And because warmer air can hold more water, you're generally more susceptible to carburetor ice on like 50 to 60 degree days with a fair amount of humidity versus really cold days. Like if you go out when it's 10 degrees, there's just not a lot of moisture in the air that can freeze and turn into ice when that airflow is accelerated in the carburetor. But when you're, um, say it's 60 degrees outside and there's a lot of humidity, um, as that air enters the carburetor and accelerates, the the air mass can no longer hold as much air. It goes back to- It gets super cooled. Yeah, right, saturation basically. and um, dew point and all that sort of stuff. That all ties together, right? And as the temperature decreases, the air mass can no longer hold the same amount of water. So it condenses out and becomes little water droplets, basically. And then those water droplets freeze because it's also losing temperature as it accelerates. And that causes carburetor ice. So- but why is why is the ice the problem? Well, then it's blocking the airflow that you're trying right. to utilize. Yeah. So in your yeah. combustion engine where you need to mix air and fuel. Right. And so yeah, here's an example. The picture that we just had up basically shows how you combat that, which is um you basically have multiple inputs into the engine uh, or into the uh induction system, the intake of the airplane on most airplanes. You'll have a filtered air system that's almost like a ram air type of inlet it's on the front of the airplane and that's your standard way to get air into the induction system you pull air through a filter and then put it into you know route it into the carburetor but then most airplanes also have a uh, car carb heat right carb heat setting which is basically um, routing heated air into the carburetor uh, in instances of carb icing or in high susceptibility to carb icing um, events and and that's basically like running the air over a heat exchanger on the on the exhaust or something uh, and then heating the air up that way and then sending that air into the carburetor as carb heat uh, I, i'm trying to recall you know many many like decades ago <laughs> that i actually mm -hmm. flew a general aviation airplane isn't that like part of your landing checklist to make sure the carb heat's on almost mm -hmm. every time mm -hmm. i mean is there any time you don't turn it on for landing? Um, Probably not. It depends on the aircraft. Probably you could argue it depends on certain weather conditions as well. It does but. depend on the airplane, yeah. And okay. There's also airplanes that are more susceptible to carburizing, like mm -hmm. the little Continentals that you find in like Cubs and Luscombs. For some reason, they're just more susceptible to carburetor icing is what I've been told. Um, but in this case, so he like, wasn't you know setting up for a landing. He was out there telling a banner. Mm -hmm. And correct. So yeah. I mean, but the weather the weather was poor, and like Nixie was saying, it was kind of just the right combination of. And they may have, you know, if they were trying to fly relatively slower to make sure that the banner was in the right place at the right time for someone to see it. You know, I can think of a whole lot of reasons why maybe they had the power pulled 
back enough that it would have made them more susceptible to carbizing mm-hmm. to kind of like landing conditions, even if it wasn't that far back. Um, is that yeah. legal, by the way? The, uh, so the conditions, 500, they were at 500 feet. Um, were they actually maintaining VFR cloud I don't know clearance? What the rule, well, I, what were the, I don't remember what the uh, cloud layer was, but. It's pretty um, low. Yeah, because yeah, they were trying to be at 1,200 said... feet anyway, but they couldn't get to 1,200 feet. So yeah. it was probably very marginal VFR. Like it okay. may have been 1,000. So they. Yeah, it's, it says that he flew at 500 feet. Yeah. Weather conditions forced the pilot to fly at an altitude of 500 feet. So we don't really know. I don't know, know if that means that clouds were at 600 feet or maybe yeah. the clouds were at 1,500. He couldn't maintain the. Thousand foot yeah. uh, he may, clearance. you know, and but regardless, he was in a, you know, in a populated area over a city. Um, so. None of that's oh, really yeah. a, well, yeah. Do they have There's, any kind of special um, exemption when you're uh, a, a banner towing thing as far as the I have, I have clearance no requirements over like city areas and stuff? I don't know. I've never done any banner yeah. towing. And I don't know if this was really done with all the appropriate. So in, in you know the United States, that would be generally part of a commercial operation. Mm-hmm. So you're subject to It just seems like pretty kind of sketchy as far as safety is concerned to be yeah, that I'm, I'm not sure all what was happening here and unfortunately yeah. had really tragic results yeah and we don't know what the answer was no to oh to well will you marry me mm-hmm. well whether it was a question in the first place or not it may no not it's just a statement <laughs> it's just a statement <laughs> will you marry me declaration <laughs> declaration <laughs> Well, it's good that we can laugh about this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we're laughing about this. This was horribly sad. It was and, not funny at all. Um, not funny, but yeah. man, uh, you know, a lot of this. You know, I is, think when we discussed this, we we did ask why he tried to land uh, instead of ditching, hmm. because uh, he, you know, he yeah. If you pull that map back up of the the city, there's he's trying to yeah, land on a bridge I mean, at he, first. There's water right there. Well, Exactly. It it might. I I question the decision to try and find some concrete to put it on when he's got all that open water. Water terrifies me. Yeah, I water is not always a great idea. Um, they're, they're, so none of those options are good options. You're basically in that moment. You get a few seconds to make the least bad decision that you can if you find yourself in that situation. Liz is saying that this is a very fast flowing river and uh, October uh, it's very cold maybe not full yeah. of ice but it's extremely cold yeah I can think of a lot of not good reasons to okay. want to land in the water I'm, I'm just um, wondering which is worse cold water or very hot fire well if the road was relatively clear of traffic and you think you can make a normal descent and landing without a lot of obstacles I would take the road over fast moving cold water 100% of the time not even 99. You're, you're going the full 100%. Well, I mean, in that specific <laughs> okay. situation. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sure. it, there's, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, there's additional variables, right? Landing in the water, landing in the water with a fixed gear airplane. Um, yeah. You can if end it up flips over. over and... Does he have the banner attached? You know, if he's going no, slow he, and he has the. I think he jettisoned, jettisoned okay. the banner. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's like bright? one advantage that airlines have is that it's it's kind of boat shaped when you hit the water. So it's. Um, yeah. Tricycle landing gear or fixed gear underneath the aircraft is not 
great for water landing. You have oh, to granted, time that granted, but there's right. no guarantee that anyway. You, you make your decision, don't you? You pick a you pick a spot and try your you, best. But, you know, uh, if you found yourself in that terrible situation, you have very little time to make. Yeah, a that that was made in the report. It was yeah. all going to happen very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, sad situation, and we were sorry to hear about the passenger fatality and the serious injury of the pilot. But uh, thought that was important to talk about on our show. Right. And thank you for the discussion of carbon. Oh, I think I found uh, the forecast conditions. Oh, uh, three statute miles, ceilings varying six hundred to twelve hundred feet. It's pretty oh, that's that low ceiling. That doesn't sound one hundred percent VFR. No, uh, to me. What well, are you talking about? Uh, the you, you talking about the Portland one? No, the, oh. this one. Oh, the Montreal oh. one. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm still in the past. I'm holding on to the past. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. I, I do have a curious, a curious tidbit about carburetor icing. It doesn't really affect this story, but um, you know, carb the other thing about carburetor ice is you're introducing hot air to the engine, so you actually have a little bit of performance degradation because you're combusting with hot air instead of cold air. Okay. And uh, the Luscom, which is the airplane that I fly, uh, when they went to certify that airplane, they had a uh, fuselage tank that sat behind the the cabin. And so it sat about like uh, head width or shoulder width to the pilots. And um, the airplane originally had a 50 horsepower engine in it. And so it was fine. And then when they put a 65 horsepower engine in it. Real high performance there. Yeah. Incredible performance. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. When they put the 65 horsepower engine in it, um, what they found is they could actually with one pilot, a quarter tank of gas, I think, or something like that, lightly loaded, right? They could take off and pitch the airplane in such a manner that they could actually get the carburetor higher than the fuel pickup Ooh. and starve the engine of, of fuel. fuel. Ooh. And so the FAA said, ah, this is not going to work. Uh, you need to do something about it. And uh, Luscom, um, being the uh, fiscally tight guy or company that they were, they were like, oh, we could do all this work, redesign everything, or we could make people take off with carburetor heat. And essentially replicate the 50 so horsepower. Take off with carb heat. So, yeah. So, so that, that airplane is power to take off with carburetor heat. So, you don't make too much power on takeoff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I want you it. to starve the carburetor. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. So, you can't pitch up too much. You don't want <laughs> right. that much performance. That's pitch no up good. good. Not too, yeah, not too much. Yeah. But then, once you're going, we want that 65 horse there for right. you. To... <laughs> right. That's. That's a good one. That is interesting. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yes, I did not know you. that. I actually did know that there were a few aircraft that required carb heat on takeoff, and I never knew the reason why. So that's it. Hmm. Yeah. That's the Luscom. I don't know any of the rest of them, but that's the Luscom. <sighs> well, maybe it was just that one. Maybe I, I don't know why I had heard that at some point. but yeah. Good story. Guess what? It's not playing. <laughs> yeah, it is playing. Is this? I don't yeah. hear it. I hear it. <laughs> well, that's weird. It sounds great. Oh, I can hear it now. Now they put the thing in Okay, that's <laughs> one of those shows. Your carburetor's plugged up. I need to turn the carburetor heat on. <laughs> uh, getting to know us, the time of the show where we get all caught up. And yeah, I know, we just recorded <laughs> like a three-part show and uh, it was just like a couple of days ago. But hey, things happen, right? Liz. Nick C wasn't I, there. I mean, let's start with him. Happens. Uh, let's start with uh, who? Nick Camacho. Nixie. He wasn't part of the Yeah, you weren't part of that three-part series. 
Lucky you. That's true. Ah, so you have the most to catch up on. That's yeah. true. I was, While you do I that, I was I'm going hit to read one of them. I thought with three opportunities. I was oh, I know, be able but you know, you have you have a life and things going on. So I what's did, been happening? I wasn't able to. Uh, so I finished my marathon work session out in California. Um, I came home and immediately jumped into. So the day I got home was the day that my airplane uh, went out of annual. So <laughs> we've been finishing up the Luskin manual. Uh, I started the annual on my airplane, and then uh, other than that, just trying to catch up on stuff around the house. I think I'm just about caught up from uh, being gone for a couple of weeks, so those are the main things. And then uh, the big thing is, I think I touched on this last time I was on, but um, I just I set up X-Plane on my computer um, to start working on my instrument rating, and then kind of... Um, coincidental to me setting that up was uh, my son had had a couple of trips. He went to our local science museum a few months ago, and then we went to the aviation, uh, the Kansas Aviation Museum here in town, and they had little simulator setups, and he was super excited about that. So uh, when I got my yoke and rudder pedals all set up on my computer, um, he was kind of came up to me. and was like, hey, what's uh, what's that stuff you got going on there on your computer? Looks like a airplane steering wheel. And I was like, yeah, that's... Uh, that's the setup. I'm trying to set up a simulator. So got it all set up and he started, uh, I started flying it with him and he's been flying it every single night that I've been home. Wow. Oh, nice. That was his biggest he's disappointment hooked. in me being gone for two weeks. He could care less <laughs> that I wasn't around, but the fact that I wasn't here to run the flight simulator with him was just, um, really crushed him. So, <laughs> yep. And he's, he is, uh, um, he is rapidly improving. You know, we started with uh, basically just letting him fly around and do everything. And then uh, last night he was flying the MD-82. I almost had to call you to figure out how to start it, Jeff. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to call Brent. <laughs> <laughs> Can you fly that by yourself, Jeff? No, I don't know how to start the engine. <laughs> uh, so, and he took off. Uh, he flew around California for, um, I don't know, probably 20 minutes and then came back and flew into San Luis Obispo and attempted a landing, actually made a okay landing, but I didn't have the thrust reverser set up. And so we definitely did not get stopped on the runway, but he's making progress. That's good. Nice. Hey, um, Nick, we, we have a question for you. Um, we, we covered, um, uh, I guess the way to ask, uh, I, the question is, um, I don't like how this is starting. Were you, uh, in Pennsylvania, um, <laughs> while back, uh, one, Lehigh Valley. That, uh, Lehigh Valley that was not me. No, <laughs> that does look a little bit like me. Okay. Do you carry Suspicious. like three inch round explosive devices in your luggage? Okay, he's no not, gonna not going to answer that. Okay, not that I'm aware of. I didn't read the. Uh, was that one of the news articles? That yeah. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. I missed that one too. But. And then when they paged him, uh, he he left. He ran out of very very part, quickly. Yeah. He ran away abruptly. Like, he ran time away. to go. Yeah, Goodbye, yeah. gotta go. Left something in the car. <laughs> gotta run. <laughs> but we mentioned we mentioned on the one of those parts that uh, uh, this guy kind of uh, kind of reminded us a little bit of you. Not what really. There's a. You know, a, the, the a vague resemblance. Vague. I was going to say like the unkempt facial hair, not quite yes. a beard, but not shaven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just wonder. Yeah. Just something we thought of. 
He's not incriminating himself. He's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah so I, I think I, that's it for me. I, I noticed, uh, Liz. He's not incriminating his, himself at all. Yeah. He's not. He's not saying <laughs> anything. Okay. That's very smart. All right, uh, Steffi. Miss Steph, what have you been mm. up to in the last few days? I did a lot of flying over oh, the weekend. That's, that's good. Yay. Um, we had gorgeous weather uh, this weekend, this past weekend, um, in comparison to the previous weekend when I was supposed to fly, and the weather was not gorgeous, um, very rainy and low ceilings. Um, so, yeah, Saturday was was great. Um, we had a lot of people wanting to get their skydive on, get back in the air after the, uh, the winter. So I think we flewed... 24 loads, 22 of them just straight through. But fortunately, we had two pilots available that day, so I didn't have to do all of them in a row because um, that's a lot of time just sitting in the airplane. And so I probably did half of those. Um, and then Sunday, we it was not quite as busy of a day on Sunday. Um, generally, they're not. People have other things to do in church and, and whatnot. Um, but really, really pretty pretty day. Um, I think last time we did getting to know us, I talked about, um, you know, the poor weather the weekend before and the fact that there was, we talked about the canopy course and you guys were giving me a hard time about what a canopy is. Um, but those jumpers came back out on Sunday. Um, and typically they don't want, they're not looking to do any free fall. So they want to get out of the aircraft airplane lower, um, anywhere from 3,500 feet to like 6,000 feet above ground level just to be able to go through their canopy drills or set up their landing or do whatever they need to do. Um, so I flew, how many floats did I fly? I flew 13 loads on Sunday and all but one had a low pass, which is, which is good. Um, except it's a very, it, low passes, especially in our caravan are just very, um, demanding on the pilot in terms of how quickly things happen and getting things set up in coordination with air traffic control and local uh, traffic communications and trying to figure out, you know, every single pass that we did, they wanted a different altitude. So trying to remember, okay, which one do they want this time? 3,500, 6,000, you know, back and forth. But uh, it's good. I was up for the challenge of it. I think it all went went reasonably well. And, um, yeah, we did, we did good. And... Um, we did some some other flying on on Sunday night, which I won't go into all the details of. But I did get to fly a, our our one eighty two, so I got my carbureted engine uh, time in. So was that was the good. naked jump? Those uh, were naked jumps. Yes. Yeah, okay. that's what they were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are always fun, especially yes. this time of year. Yes, I have some slides you know. on that. Um, you have some slides no, on that, Liz says. Okay. <laughs> Do I have some slides on that? I was not allowed to take photographs. Uh, oh, okay. But. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was it was a great weekend. Um, a lot of flying. And yeah, and I'm glad I, um, I was asked to swap out. I was not supposed to fly this past weekend, but the uh, pilot who was supposed to could not do so. Mm. So we switched last weekend for the coming weekend. And this weekend, the weather looks terrible again. So I'm glad I had a, a nice weekend of flying. Glad you got some flying in. Yeah. That's cool. And I have to put together, we, we have our annual safety day um, talks coming up on Saturday. So... I, I give the honors of doing the aircraft-related safety considerations. Which so, is very important. So, yeah, we lead off the day with it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I have the, the previous year's PowerPoints, which is just a conglomeration of everyone who's done it in the past. Just keeps old stuff, adds new stuff. I'm just going to go through it and tweak it and make it my own. Nice. It's already got the right information. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Steph. 
Captain Nick. How was uh Yes, sir. How's how's that neck and back and all that kind of stuff? All yeah, parts. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Captain I'm, Nick. I'm, it's been, Captain a, it's neck. been a few days now and it's really still rather sore. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it looks pretty cold where you me. are there. I see the snow behind you in the um, window. Well, and the back up, the up in Scotland, garden. which isn't that far north, it's minus pardon me, fifteen degrees centigrade. So that's pretty chilly tonight. Now, uh, we've had a fair amount of snow today down here, but it's it's bordering on zero. So, mm. you know, it's melting almost as fast as it comes down. So mm -hmm. no big deal, although some of the little country lanes have been a bit snowed out. Um, anyway, managed to bowl today and uh, came up with a draw. Mm, mm. But, but um, that was a good game. Enjoyed it anyway. Uh, and bowling uh, throughout the uh, rest of the week, which is uh, fine. Uh, next week, um, tomorrow, next a, a week tomorrow, uh, I'll be in the Isle of Wight uh, giving a talk to the Royal Aeronautical Society, oh. Isle of Wight branch. So uh, looking forward to that. And as I mentioned last week, if you're sort of in the area, I'm sure they will uh, allow visitors. Topic? Um uh, it's my usual talk of uh, chasing bears in a phantom. So oh, that's nice. that. Um, and uh, what else is happening? Yeah, I'm, I was trying to organize a meetup with Sam and Garrett, uh, the two uh, pilots who frequently fly into uh, London. Uh, but um, you'll remember that I had a, a, a major a hack of my uh, oh. Facebook and oh, yeah. email uh, address um, and all the nasties that go along with that. That is still ongoing, but I've managed to get control of some of my uh, social media. Um, but uh, we were communicating, I'm pretty sure, on Messenger, and I've yet to manage to get, to get Messenger back online again. So... Uh, Guys, if you're trying to get in contact with me, you might want to uh, send it either to my APG address, uh, nick at airlinepilotguide.com, and let me know uh, if you've managed to find some dates when you can both uh, come. We were going to go and meet at the um, uh, meet up in London and go to the uh, Science Museum because they have an aviation wing there, which I have never seen. I would quite interested to see it. I've mentioned it a few times because aircraft that I've talked about are apparently in the Science Museum, but never seen it. Um, so uh, Sam and Garrett, if uh, you're trying to get in contact with me uh, and you can't, uh, my apologies, but uh, um, my, <laughs> my various accounts are in a security nightmare and various lockdowns. And uh, um, someone has been posting stuff uh, that purporting to be me, and it's very tasteless. So uh, I, I, I've uh, infringed community comments, standards. Pro as Boeing they say. comments. Yeah. Very offensive. <laughs> <laughs> no, not so much. No, more like pictures of terrorists. So uh, mm. there you go. Mm. Uh, anyway, that's uh, if you see ever see, if you see any of that stuff on my accounts, it's not me. I promise you. 
Um, what else can I say? Uh, not much, really. Just uh, possibly mention the artwork. Before you do Jeff, that, um, it looks like put me... I'm, I'm looking at your um, window behind you there. And uh, is that your uh, little robot um, lawn mowing device out there? You probably want to bring that in because it looks like it's... Uh, it's going to get some icing. Pretty, yeah, it's going to get icing get for sure. <laughs> yeah. Is it a... Carburetor ice. Yeah, poor thing. No, no. <laughs> luckily, it hasn't been out there. Although the dogs have been out, out running around in the snow mm -hmm. having a good time. Time. They oh. love it. They <laughs> always it's great. Okay, yeah, cover art. Yes, please. Yeah, I was going to mention that uh, you very kindly um, found a uh, an interesting um, way of uh, getting hold of artwork, uh, which involves using uh, an artificial in artificial intelligence. Uh, part of a, a a program you can find on midjourney.com. And uh, it it's, takes you a little getting your head around because it's not like any art program that I've ever used. You uh, you type in to a, uh, a almost like a blog um, a message with various keywords, and the AI interprets that and produces a piece of artwork, which <laughs> we we did this time for. Uh, the theme of in a hot mess, and uh, mm -hmm. I can't quite work out whether that's you, me, or some other uh, kind of dev -dev almost like a combination of the two of us. Somebody, I think Brent was saying it looked like Geraldo, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. one of our people over here in the U.S. What's his well, name? I, I think it's great. It, it's going to take Rivera. a little bit of getting Rivera. used to. Yeah. But uh, it is a fascinating concept, uh, and we'll see how that goes, whether it's worth keeping going. But uh, that was certainly uh, <laughs> great fun creating that one. And uh, there was an alternative version of that, and I chose yes, this there was, one. a lady version. Yeah, and I, I like the one that we were just showing there, but I'm going to show you the alternative version. Uh, there we go. Uh, well, it was it was um, here that I discovered that uh, in a hot mess seems to be associated with a record and a group, uh, and it was all to do with uh, Reno Nine One One, which was a police comedy uh, in the states. I didn't know anything about it, but apparently there's a character on there called Clemmy. Uh, yeah. Who uh, was a, a very hot lady? Um, so that's what the artwork produced for me. I, I did alter it obviously a little by putting uh, bits and pieces on it, like the name tag and the shoulder patch. Mm -hmm. But uh, other than that, the artwork did it, and the text, of course, the the title. Other than that, the uh, AI did it all by itself. Right? It's very impressive. Now I've seen a few episodes of Reno Nine One One, and I don't remember this particular song or whatever doesn't quite look like her it's it's no. not it's not the face the face looks mm. different but uh um clemmy was uh, uh someone who uh wore her blouse well unbuttoned and um was a bit flirty uh, i gather that's what the write-up yeah. in wikipedia it's, been, was it's been a long time since i've seen any of reno 911 episodes <laughs> they're quite funny though and that just reminds me, and, and Liz reminded me um, that uh, I flew with a guy once that he, when we used to have lockers in the flight, in the uh, pilot lounge, um, when we had flight kits and you put your 
flight kit and the locker and everything else. And I opened up my locker and this guy had this picture of, um, Jim, uh, Lieutenant Jim Dangle or whatever yeah. I don't know what his rank was, Lieutenant but uh, one of the officers of Reno 911, he said, he said, you know, you remind me of uh, Jim Dangle. <laughs> oh, <that's right. laughs> you weren't short. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That's the guy shorts. with the very tight shorts. Yes. Very exactly. short shorts. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't know, I don't know why. I never wore tight shorts when we were on layovers or anything. I don't know what, what he was talking about. But anyway, I thought it was funny. I'm sure it was more of the mustache. Uh, maybe. I don't know. What have you been up to since Sunday, Jeff? What have I been up to, uh, Liz? Uh, I've been up to trying to figure out how to put together three parts of a episode 559 together and uh and then go out and fly and uh try to finish editing and publishing before we record 560 which is what we're doing right now <laughs> so and in the midst of that i was singing of course at my church and then going out on a trip uh, monday night through wednesday morning which is this morning uh with brent this is um the last month that I'm going to be flying with First Officer Brent because he was just uh, uh, advised that he is going to upgrade training in the first part of April. So uh, this is it. Wow. So Good luck to it. him. Please pass yeah. on our Woo-hoo. best. Congratulations to I Brent. will. I will. What a great guy. I'm really enjoying. And this month, these trips are like unlike any that we've seen in a while. They're just really pretty good now next month it goes back to or reverts to crap but uh you without know. brent without brent too it's going to be even worse oh well i'm a little sad yeah back to the wichita time to retire yeah. back to wichita yeah Ugh. no i'm sure that i'll be <laughs> I'll able have to, to i'll have to get brent's contact information and start meeting yeah because he's he probably going to be heading out there every now and then after the after the last trip when me and him just about left you behind because i know it's like hello hey i'm still here <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that though actually that's pretty cool that uh you know you guys have a good relationship that's a lot better than mine okay um <laughs> let's uh go over here to this and play what are we doing now coffee fund Yes, coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Now we sing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't hear her, but you will if you're listening to the audio-only podcast. Liz singing along with me, The Coffee Fund. Do you want to join a group of amazing people who support us financially? Well, let me tell you how you do that. A couple different ways. Head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll find out about the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is your way to kind of contribute via a one-off kind of thing. Basically, that's what it's set for, although there are some people who do recurring uh, donations as well. We thank them. Uh, since the last episode, we have Mazus Karim, and he's kind of a recurring, recurring, recurring donor. About once a month, he gives us a very generous donation. Thank you, Mazuts, for doing that. And thank you all of you who uh, we don't mention anymore, but have a uh, 
recurring donations as well. We do appreciate that. The other way to um, support us in a recurring way is via Patreon. (coughs) Excuse me. Patreon.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. It's your way to support the show on a episode per episode uh, kind of a pledge and you can set um, a maximum amount and all that kind of stuff but uh, yeah go over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee you'll find out how to do both of those methods and uh, we're happy that many of you do that do appreciate it and now it's time for us to move to our feedback segment Captain, incoming message. Thank you. All right. Now, this is awesome, I think. Uh, A a gentleman named, well, I'm I'm assuming he's a gentleman, Oliver. You've heard his voice, by the way. Uh, We talked about this incident. Was it last show, Uh, Liz? Yeah, I think so. Okay. One of those parts that we just did. Uh, there was um, an incident, a go-around and uh, near-miss kind of situation in Burbank, California. And there was a general aviation uh, aircraft out there flying around. And I think he was the first transmission that we heard. It was uh, November 1547 Charlie. And uh, so this person named Oliver sent this into us. He says, hey, crew. Not sure I have any feedback worth reading on the air. Are you kidding me? (laughs) But one note, the field elevation at Burbank is 778 feet, so 1,000 MSL is about 300 feet above the ground. I was the pilot for November 1547 Charlie, the light aircraft for the Burbank incident, and was also sent around at about 300 to 400 feet above ground. I feel like the situation happened because I was trying to land on 2-6 due to the winds, but also I don't think that the situation was my fault. He put some parentheses or not parentheses, uh, quotes, uh, any feedback for me on what I could have done differently. I think maybe I should have asked for two, six again, but the wind had just been variable at six prior to her reading me the latest wind info. I figured I'd try to make it down in the crosswind and just go around again if it didn't work. And he says, I ended up greasing it. Oliver. Well, that's the way we do at the APG, especially our APG community members are like the best pilots in the world. And of course, we wouldn't have assumed anything different from you, Oliver. You obviously yeah, would have greased there's it nothing on. quite like a greasy listener. <laughs> well, not exactly the way I would have put that. But um, so I, can I you, don't... Can you, um, so for those of us who weren't the ones discussing this and people who may not have even had a chance to listen to that episode yeah. yet, just re- refresh the basics of what happened in, uh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. in this situation. <laughs> no, I don't know. Oh, just, okay. That's why I'm asking. Okay. So, uh, there I think was, you discussed it on a different part. There was, was a, part. a couple of Maybe. regional jets. Uh, one had given, been given, um, line up and wait on a runway three, three, I believe. And another regional, I think it was an air shuttle, I'm not sure exactly, uh, coming in on final. But uh, Oliver was uh, just minding his own business out there and flying um, a, an approach to runway 26, a visual approach. And I think at some point the controller decided or realized that this is all not going to work and all these airplanes are going to be all at the 
the same place at the same time. So he told Oliver, she told Oliver to uh, discontinue his approach, or maybe she said go around, I'm not sure, and then like turn a crosswind. And she didn't say left or right crosswind. I, th- I believe Oliver asked which way she wanted him to turn. And she said, and you know, he's on two six and he, she told him to turn a crosswind for runway three, three. Now, honestly, when I, Oliver, when I was looking at this, I'm going, I'm not sure which way I would turn in this situation. When you're going to two six, she tells you to join a crosswind for runway three, three. I don't know which way to go either. Uh, but then she clarified left crosswind. So he was out there in the meantime, the, uh, lineup and wait um, jet was starting the takeoff roll and the guy coming in, or I say guy, the pilots coming in from um, on approach to runway 33 decided that there was not, that there wasn't going to be a separation. So they went ahead, instead of trying to land, they went ahead and went around. And then the takeoff run uh, airplane was flying the departure procedure and the guy on the go around was flying the missed approach instructions and they were kind of basically almost flying over the top of each other. Again, kind of one of those instance instances that we've talked about before where somebody's going around and somebody's taking off and they're flying into each other and all that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Um, so Liz has just informed me that she's thrown this in. Uh, Yes, one uh, H. If you crew want to uh, look at this, and it was a, a video, a um, yeah. vast aviation video. No, I just yeah, I was just looking for kind of the the basics on that, it, just to the basics kind of refresh was, everyone's memory on. Yeah, yeah there that, was that makes sense. That's there was a lot. Of, there was just a lot happening, and yes. everyone kind of in each other's space. And Oliver, I, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, he probably didn't. Uh, but, uh, he was going like, after all this was going on, he's going like, uh, okay, what, what would you like me to do here? I'm, I'm still here, by the way, I'm still flying. And I think she asked still on this like, crosswind. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you still want to land here? Yeah. <laughs> I still want to land. Um, if, if I recall the situation correctly. Um, but yeah, Oliver, heck no, you are not, this is not your fault in any way. You were out there doing your your thing and these uh regional uh flights these yahoo regional pilots out there were uh screwing things up for you and uh so i i think and i think yeah let's see if i can do i have that available to me right now i don't know let's see i think i do i do yes that's a major win for me today (laughs) for feels good doesn't it yeah yes it does feel good liz um so I think. That I mean, without the, having, I didn't. I didn't listen to the all the audio for that. I'll go back mm-hmm. and listen to it at some point, Oliver. But I mean, it sounds like you did the right thing. You queried, you know, for clarification on the instruction because it wasn't a clear instruction. No, it was not. Um, you know, maintain situational awareness about what's happening with the other two aircraft that are, you know, trying to figure out where they're going. The one flying the their missed approach and the other one doing their departure procedure, and then you know, basically, when it's an appropriate time try and figure out how to how to work back in exactly and i think i even mentioned when we were covering this i think the last wind call out that the tower controller made was winds come kind of coming out of the west at a like 15 knot gust and i and i even made the comment like oh Whoa, that's sporty uh, yeah for sporty the for a light airplane. yeah yeah that's a so. i mean a gusty 15 knot crosswind isn't 
terribly fun, even on a long runway. Mm -hmm. And I, so good on you. You uh, greased it on. That's awesome. So yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think you did anything wrong and it certainly wasn't your fault. You just happened to be at, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. Yeah. Right place at the right time for, hmm? you know, just, I said the right place at the right time. Or the right, for... yeah, I, I always get that wrong. I always <laughs> say that wrong. But um, the, the, the main thing to say about this, Liz, go ahead and put that up there. It's a small world. Can you believe that we're covering this incident that a lot of people are talking about uh, a lot of places? And uh, Oliver is one of our community members and uh he was there during the thing in a small world i'd also say thanks for not being hesitant to send in some feedback about it and yeah. ask for and ask for feedback right. I, mean, I think that's what all of us should be doing mm -hmm. as pilots and professionals continuing to try and you know improve and grow i agree so thanks yeah you, you you nailed it man thank you oliver and that's uh you're, thank you for setting the example for others to you know like contact us and you know, reach out and say, Hey, did I, did I do this right? You did. I think we'll you did a great you. job. Yeah. We'll tell you, we'll let you know. Okay. Um, three B. Okay. This is feedback from Brent. Not my favorite first officer, Brent, Brent Brackop or we Brackop. Like him, but he's not our favorite. We, we like Brent, but he's not my first officer. So yeah. Uh, let's see. I got to load up a video here and, uh, so I'll just take a moment and, uh, okay. Open. Okay. It's ready to go. Um, this, uh, okay. Hello, APG crew. A friend of mine received news today of a family friend that passed away. Jim Anderson, a former TWA pilot that retired in 1989. Now I'll just stop by saying, Anybody with the last name of Anderson is probably not a very good pilot, but we'll <laughs> yeah. go ahead and cover this anyway. Um, they have to be just retired. Horrid <laughs> man. Um, Jim's son included a video of his dad during the 1980s that deserves being shared with the APG community. I feel we could celebrate Jim by watching him demonstrate the value and enjoyment of good old-fashioned chair flying at its best. So next time we need recurrent work on flows or a learn a new airplane, uh, remember you can make it fun with family and friends, as Jim shows. Jim was a former LaGuardia chief pilot and flew Captain Jeff's beloved L-1011. Cheers, everyone. Brent. And uh, so I think now we're going to watch <laughs> Jim Anderson uh, do some good old-fashioned chair flying. Dad practicing to fly the L-1011. Uh, one summer in the 1980s, Dad had worked had not worked much. He had been off for well over a month. He was on call but never received any assignments. Thinking he may get rusty, he decided to brush up on his skills. <laughs> so we're looking at the... Um, hey, Ralph, we have takeoff clearance. Would you alert the flight attendants to be seated, please? A paper Billy, tiger. Read the four takeoff checklist. He's in on. his uniform shirt. On. He's got his captain's hat on. Check. <laughs> Check. Okay. Ready. Okay, now we've got the yoke. Pushing the, the throttles, Ralph. Pushing the throttles up. 
<laughs> it's a Lockheed L-1011. It, it, it takes a lot of now. muscle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gear up. Clear the right. Last five. Last one. He started laughing. <laughs> He's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> you like can't even keep a straight face doing it. <laughs> I think That's he great. must have been a really great guy and a very funny person. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Thank you, Brent, for sending that in. Um, Jim Anderson, you know, thank you, sir. A salute from all of us. Um, Absolutely. When I think of the hours and hours I spent in fixed-based trainers doing exactly that, I think, <laughs> oh, God, takes me back. Yeah. That was good. All right. Uh, let's continue on with uh, the next item, which is some feedback from Els Piloto or Pilato. Uh, no nonsense, no Tams. Uh, he sent us a link to that video that we already covered, the um, ops group um, guide, the field guide to no Tams, mm -hmm. which is just awesome. So just a reminder, if you haven't watched that yet, please do. Hi, Jeff and crew. I'm back for another one of my mad ramblings. And we're back to no TAMs. Yes, notice to air missions. For the benefit of your listeners who did not know what it is to have lost years and youth to these soul-sucking pages. No TAMs are defined as manure piles of useless aeronautical information containing small gems of vital career-saving information which are disseminated to aircrew by failed novelists. <laughs> In a number of countries, said failed novelists are clearly paid per word written with added bonuses for use of such words no person outside of the Oxford University Library would understand, such as bifurcation. Yes, you, India. <laughs> I feel seen. I use that word all the time. Bifurcation yeah. is like uh, like the devil's tail, right? It's a split in something. Yeah. I mean, we use it to describe like how arteries and blood vessels and things bifurcate. Oh, I, I just remember it out of a, a quote from a movie with uh, Clooney. Um, I forgot what the movie is, uh, but it's a good movie. Talking about uh, the devil and his bifurcated tail. Yeah. yeah, it fits. Yeah. So wind back a few days and to the fresh steaming stack of manure sat in front of me while I prepared for a flight to Japan from the Middle East at 2 a.m. in the morning. My latest rambling was ignited. Maybe it had to do with the fatigue that had set in as I reached airport Notams on the Japanese mainland after having to read through 62 pages. 62 pages of Pakistani, Indian, Chinese, and Korean Notams to pick out the only one nugget that would save me from embarrassment and or a good telling off. In this case, a temporary airway reroute in Chinese airspace of which Captain Nick is aware, results in heavy fines to the airline if not flown correctly. There in Romeo, Juliet, Bravo, Bravo, Osaka, or Osaka, the most idiotic NOTAM of all. Here's the quote. Grooving for runway six left, two four right, gradually installed or erased. You, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel like that got put through the standard Japanese Google Translate machine that comes up with some real nonsense English. Well, uh, you know, that grooving is gradually installed, installed or, erased. or erased. I mean, either it's one or the other. Man. <laughs> this NOTAM was then followed by several NOTAMs similar to this one. RCLL, runway center line lighting, for runway 6 left, 24 right, unserviceable. Exact time will be notified by further NOTAM. What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> so they wrote a NOTAM to tell me a NOTAM is coming after this NOTAM. Mm -hmm. Okay. Notice. There will be a notice. There will be something further in the future. Uh, er, just writing this has drained my will to live. <laughs> I'm going to bed. May your NOTAM package be light and your dispatcher generous with fuel. Else Palota. Oh, <laughs> That's so good. The fact that they were written in tiny print, double-sided on A4, and you still got 50, 60, 70 pages of them. It was impossible. I mean, it's it, domestically. We fly from here to Atlanta to Greenville Spartanburg. Like or Greenville Spartanburg, 20 yeah. minutes flight. And they're like, I don't know how many pages, 20 pages of no dams. Really? Yeah. Come on. Is there anything <laughs> that's really important? No. Crazy. Well, Bert. you know what no dams are. That's what no dams are. They're just a bunch of garbage that nobody pays any attention to. Yep. Former. Until you're in a court of law. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll be spanked for not catching that one NOTAM that yep. could have saved your career. All right. Well, thank you very much, Els Peloto, for sending that in and continuing on with this. This is one of uh, Captain Nick's favorite subjects, balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Ham Radio Jim, we haven't heard from you in a while, Ham Radio Jim. Why doesn't the U.S. Air Force use bullets to deflate these balloons instead of multi-million dollar missiles? or missiles, if you prefer. They might be easier to track once hit. Maybe they will remain intact enough to salvage. Just a thought. What do you think, Nick? Uh, so you responded to uh, Ham Radio Jim. Well, I did. I, I, said, I said we discussed it on the show. Um, and uh, I did send him a quick email as a reply, and it just did it off the top of my head over the breakfast table. But the problem with... Um, shooting down a balloon. I mean, it's pretty hard when they were observers balloons in first in the First World War when the fighters only did, I don't know, 50, 60 miles an hour, uh, and they were flying very low. But when you're trying to hit a balloon that's effectively stationary uh, in the upper atmosphere, 60, 70,000, some of these have got to, um, you, the fighter is doing a very high true airspeed, so the closure rate is enormous. Uh, they're going to be doing in the region of five or 600 uh, knots uh, closure rate. Uh, and the range of the weapon isn't that great. It's a few thousand feet, and uh, at that speed, your break-off distance is going to be very high, so you're only going to get a very short burst in. And um, the explosive rounds are never going to detonate against the thin skin of the balloon. So they're just going to go straight through it, leaving a relatively small hole. 
um, which isn't really, it's a big piece of kit, it's really going to affect it at all. It's going to carry on ad infinitum, even with a bunch of holes in it. So, um, yeah, it, it, the, the risk of collision would, would be very high. Uh, because don't forget the, uh, your, the your fighter is not maneuvering well. Uh, that you got a lot of inertia when you're doing five or six hundred knots true airspeed, but your indicated airspeed is very low. So yeah, you know it's you're down at say two or three hundred knots, and uh, you can't maneuver the aircraft very well. And if you if you so high that you have to go supersonic to get a good speed that's going to be even worse so it, not a safe maneuver to try and strafe something uh, with the gun it's just too short range um and your closure rate is too fast so the missile was the obviously obvious weapon to use because uh, whether it be a heat source or a radar source you can uh, home the missile in, and uh, it stands a good chance of fusing on it. So hmm. I think the choice was great. And, you know, the, the boys that are flying these maneuvers, and they've got very sophisticated aircraft, um, and they know their stuff. They they uh, they know what the best weapon is. And, uh, you know, missiles don't last forever. So it's not exactly uh, you know, a waste of a missile. They're going to life out eventually so you stick an old one on there probably why not use it <laughs> well, yeah, when nearing use... its expiration date yeah exactly right it's like when and, you're eating you know food at 7-eleven <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh, uh yeah make sure you get it down shoot the balloon down i haven't heard much about what the packages you know the instrument packages were do we really know what these guys were it's doing? been very quiet mm, very quiet yes, it has gone super quiet well, was don't look over here nothing here to see <laughs> uh tim van ram says you don't want to brag about short bursts <laughs> well well if you, if you i mean it depends on how many of them yeah you got a lot of short bursts it's pretty impressive mm. it's endurance <laughs> okay there you go uh let's see if i can find something appropriate um Wow, <laughs> that's a lot. Very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Neil says a British pilot would deflate the balloon with their razor sharp wit. Mm. Absolutely, yes. Because mm -hmm. you well, read Baron. Or at least they think that they have that. <laughs> okay. Um, continuing on with Nigel. Uh, November Echo Whiskey. Okay. Now, Nigel Ward in the chat room. And uh, he says, hello, APG crew. I'm a new listener to your eloquent podcast. Oh, my gosh. He must have hit his head on something. He must be a drinker. Wow. You, he says, he must be a drinker. <laughs> <laughs> you all were recommended to me by my uncle, who is something of an aviation hobbyist. He sent feedback on a few episodes recently. I'm November Echo Whiskey, and my uncle is Sierra Bravo. I think these people think that we're the opposing are they, are bases. Are they sending podcast. feedback into opposing bases? <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. This is the airline pilot guy. You can use real names here. Really. Nigel, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's, uh, I've been diving into aviation since September, and the aviation alphabet was the first thing that stuck out to me, so much so that I've taken the nomenclature to an, ob to an obnoxious level, admittedly. Ah, well, there it is. He's just enjoying the, oh, yeah. uh, the alphabet. It has nothing to do with the opposing, opposing bases. Okay. We'll cut him some slack. Nonetheless, 
I enjoy the lingo and the cryptographic nature it can have just as much as I've enjoyed getting my aviation knowledge to grow and become airborne. Anyway, I have a question mostly designed for Captain Nick, but anyone can answer if he or she feels so inclined. I'm a budding fighter pilot. I'm currently training for OCS, which is Officer Candidate School, and making progress towards a private pilot license. My question is, what should I focus on with regard to my flight study that would be most applicable to the fighter pilot training that I'll eventually go through after having passed OCS and basic training? I've made the rounds of aviation podcasts, including Vincent uh, Jello uh, Aiello's, I think that's what he says, fighter pilot podcast. That one and yours are my favorite aviation voices to listen to. I really appreciate your work, especially Captain Nick's Plane Tales. Thanks for reading, and I look forward to continue uh, listening to you all very respectfully. November Echo Whiskey. And I'll just start off by saying, well, if you have a very high um, uh, sense of um, of yourself, a very high um, impression Opinion. or... Opinion? Opinion, yes. That's the word I'm looking for of yourself. Then you'll be right in there for it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, fighter pilots, <laughs> fighter pilot. We give fighter pilots a bad, a bad uh, name or a bad, uh, a bad something. You can always tell a fighter pilot, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> that's true. And how do you know if he is a fighter pilot? Well, you, you don't have to ask. No, he'll tell you. He'll tell you. <laughs> so. Tell me, uh, we, we're talking about, um, you know, university study qualifications or what? what I'm not sure. I don't think so. Applicable? Training for think... OCS, I'm not sure exactly what he means by that, but go ahead. Uh, well, uh, if, you're, if you're talking about uh, what kind of training you should be doing, you're doing your private pilot license level. What kind of flight training you're doing? Well, get a good grip of the basics is uh, important in any world. Because there's one thing that a fighter pilot uh, has to do is he has to do flying the aircraft and doing everything that most uh, you know commercial pilots do with it: take off, land, go from A to B, uh, deal with emergencies, all that. It has to be absolute second nature. Because don't forget the when you're a military pilot, the airplane is now your weapons platform. Uh, and all the ancillary stuff you're doing that everyone else is the entirety of everyone else's world uh, is pushed to one side. Everyone expects you to be able to get airborne safely, depart in a, a close formation, get from A to B and do a recovery and get all your aircraft in your formation back safely on the ground. And that's sort of dealt with in 10 seconds in the brief and uh, barely talked about in the debrief. What you need to concentrate on is actually using your aircraft as a weapon. So that's where all your study is. So when you're starting off, you've just got to learn to fly your machine uh, just absolutely the best standard you can so that it becomes completely natural and you can almost forget about that aspect of your flying so that you can concentrate in uh, in using your uh, aircraft in the way it's intended uh, so that your flying becomes second nature. Um, uh, wouldn't worry too much at the early stages. The military will teach you 
everything you need to know. And they will do it in, albeit very fast, but very simple progressive steps so that almost everyone can keep up. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they don't want you to fail. They want you to succeed. So uh, you'll be given a bit of flex if you're not coping. But most people will, if you've got a, a, the right bent towards military flying, most people will just launch up that flight of stairs and they won't have a problem at all. Um, that's about all I can say, really, because uh, I, I, I don't know a great deal about... Uh, flight training in the United States uh, or flight training that occurs nowadays compared with what I did 45 years ago. I, I mean, I think you're 100% correct there, Captain Nick. I think, and I see this in other professions and fields as well, where there's, especially as someone is getting into their field and they're excited about all of the things related to it, there's a tendency to want to look forward, look ahead to what's coming next. Um, and it, it can be really hard to stay in that moment of here's what I really need to focus on right now, which is those foundation steps and building blocks. So um, be really good at that. And then everything else will come easier down the road. Yeah, you need you need a hugely solid base of flying ability to then be able to almost dismiss that, make that almost autonomous mm -hmm. so that you can concentrate on on using uh, your aircraft as a weapon. So you build up, build those building blocks, those early building blocks very solidly so that you can do everything to the best of your ability and then everything else will come naturally. That, I mean, I can't add anything else to that. You guys are just nailing it. And uh, the, um, let's see, Super Fred Driver in our live audience says, OCS, long way off from fighter life. Master the basics and focus on the airplane you're in. Don't focus on the T-38 while you're still learning the T-6. Signed, a former UPT instructor. Yeah. Hey, Super Fred Driver, I'm advice. a former UPT instructor as well, and I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Yeah. Liz says, if he's interested in the phonetic alpha alphabet, he should listen to the plain tale in episode 302, where uh -huh. Captain Nick <laughs> yes. eloquently covers the phonetic alphabet. I think it's called Charlie Alpha Papa Tango. No, he doesn't. Uh, it's, it's in an old-fashioned version of the phonetic alphabet. This is a, it's a plain tale all about the origins of the phonetic it's, it's, it's longer than this, but it's called Coca Abel Peter Tokyo something Nan King something. Like <laughs> <Very> good, <laughs> something. Nailed it. Something, something, something. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, great advice. Um, yeah. You just have to uh, master the basics so that it's just second nature because yeah. you just got to. Use yeah. your airplane as a when you weapon. get to where you want to be, you have to have a very solid uh, understanding of the basics of flying, so that you don't worry about doing that anymore. You know, you concentrate on things like pointing your airplane at the ground and dropping bombs and all that kind of stuff. All right. So the next one is also from November Echo Whiskey or Nigel. We like to call him. 
Um, he says, I have a question regarding the kinds of airspaces in the United States. It has to do with oh, the... I'm just going to turn my mic off now. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> because okay. you can hang out. It's okay. I have the, no. an answer to this. I think probably Nick C. has an answer, and Rick has chimed in with his answer yeah. as and well. I'll, and so Nick and you're, I will stand back. Yeah, you can, you know. In fact, a, I'm going to hand break. over. You have the aircraft stuff. Oh, my controls. Yep. Uh, all right. He says, hello, APG crew. I have a question regarding the kinds of airspaces in the U.S. It has to do with a quiz question I have received on previous tests for, quote, air combat, close quote. To me, having read sources online and asked others, I have found it difficult to answer what should be a simple question. Anyways, I have received the question that reads, the two main types of airspaces inside the U.S. are A, class A and B, B, Controlled and uncontrolled, C. IFR and VFR, D. IMC and VMC. I have always answered B. That's controlled and uncontrolled. But I get pushback because technically those are subcategories. I know class A and class B are subcategories. Also, the word main is throwing me off slightly because it implies that there could be a generally accepted answer that would not necessarily align with the FAA handbook. And I'm pretty certain that this... Uh, could be the case here, unless I'm wrong, which would not surprise me. I hate to be the one who asks for answers on tests, but I've searched the FAA handbook and website, by the way, both of which say regulatory and non-regulatory, and online forums for this answer, and I get conflicting responses from the sources. Again, for what it's worth, I think the answer is B. If the crew has an opinion or definitively knows, I would love to hear your thoughts. Very respectfully, uh, November Echo Whiskey. Should we read Rick's answer, which he emailed back to him first? Yeah, hold on. And then we'll we'll sure. open it up for debate. If uh, actually, okay. and I have a definitive answer for Ooh. November Echo Whiskey. Well, as definitive as I was able to find, because this is actually I've actually seen debate on this question, so I don't know where this question comes from and what else it's being used for. But um, anyway, Rick says, um, given the available choices and by simple process of elimination, I'm with you that the answer here is B. I looked this up in the FAA's um, Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, I think is the actual name of the book. Um, and there's a whole chapter on airspace. And I think this is where November Echo Whiskey um, got some of the information from that he was using to answer the question. Um, but I'm just going to read what it says because it's in the introduction. Um, it says the two categories... Um, which is not what the question really asks. It said two main types. There are two categories of airspace, which are regulatory and non-regulatory. Within these two categories, there are four types, controlled, uncontrolled, special use, and other airspace. So the main types of airspace are controlled and uncontrolled. Those other two special use and other airspace are not main types. And so I agree. The answer is B. Direct from the source, the FAA. So you're saying B. I'm saying B. And that's what Rick is saying. Correct. That is the answer that I would also use. And I think that that's what Nigel chose as well. So we all. Yeah, I'd be curious who's telling him that. Uh, that it would be anything else. Yeah. Who's giving him pushback. I mean, I'm kind of with Rick in that it's pretty straightforward if you look at this. Uh, D is a condition and not a type of airspace. Mm -hmm. C is a flight rule 
and mm-hmm. not a type of airspace. A and B are classes of airspace, as denoted by the word class right in front of the letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I have like it's hard for me to understand like what. Why you would get pushback. And what I wonder the if the pushback is actually other... between answer A and answer B. Like if controlled and uncontrolled is what they were looking for. I agree that perhaps the question could be, I, I don't know. It's a, it depends on what the question is referring to in terms of what you were taught. Because certainly somewhere in your reference materials, it should be pretty clearly laid out. And I think in this case, the reference material is the pilot's handbook of aeronautical knowledge. I mean, like, far be it for me to say that the FAA has, has mastered language. the wording of questions. <laughs> because let me tell you, going through some of the questions I've gone through recently, <laughs> um, they haven't. But, you know, even just saying, like, the two main types of airspace, it's like, are you when you say main types of airspace, like, if they're looking for classes, it could be, like, class G, because there's more class G airspace than anything else. Yeah. Class A, because class A is everywhere if you're above a certain altitude. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I would, obviously, I would argue that the question is just like kind of weirdly worded. It's just kind of a, it's a, it's a question to, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually not going to say what I was going to say. The <laughs> kind of, kind of is written like a no Tam kind mm. of, kind of garbage. Bunch of garbage. But, yeah. Yeah. It's not really testing what it thinks it's trying to test in this case. Well, and also, Nigel, if you're hoping to be um, a fighter pilot, you have to take the attitude that whatever you decide the correct answer is, that is the correct answer. Right. Confidence. Got to have confidence. Nick was not listening to that. No. I think Nick needs to go to He's bed. falling asleep. Hey, Nick, how you doing, man? You want to uh, leave us? Uh, and I, I was just sleep? reading my logbook mm-hmm. uh, in preparation for the next plane tale. Oh, can so we? I was can we read using it my time wisely? <laughs> Being but, uh, efficient use. <laughs> Does he need his bed? He's like U.S. But, airspace. Uh, I'm out. Do yeah. Different. Look, when I flew in uh, American airspace, I was speaking to an air traffic controller and under their control. Uh, uh, all day, every day, and I hadn't a clue what the airspace I was flying in was, <laughs> no. or what the rules relating to it were, <laughs> and what's more, I didn't care. <laughs> it was controlled airspace. Yes, exactly. So, it was one of the main types of it, airspace. It wasn't until very recently, and I've shared this before on the show, where you know a, a lot of us at ACME were ex or former military, and you know, we didn't really understand all the all the fine details of stuff like controlled airs and different classes of airspace and that kind of thing. It just it just wasn't like ah, whatever. Uh, where I didn't understand when somebody told me that I was exiting the class Bravo. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like whatever. I don't understand what that means. And I know it's like, oh, now I know that it means that you have to, you know, comply with certain speed reg, you know speed restrictions and that kind of thing i'm aware of it now because uh, like for instance i just flew up to uh, white plains last week and there's uh you have, when you approach white plains you have to fly under a class b shelf and that means you have to be at the or under 200 knots or your minimum clean airspeed which is probably around 210 knots for us um and uh 
I, I, I didn't have any idea what that meant until very, very, very recently. So, you've been listening to Opposing Bases. Then. Opposing Bases, I love that show, <laughs> and I, they gave me a wonderful um, coat, a jacket that I've been wearing a lot because it's very. Comfortable. Does that improve your knowledge? No, it has nothing to do with. Makes my you knowledge. look smart. <laughs> it's got a little uh, in the line, the jacket liner on the inside, or like all the cheat. The crib notes. No, yeah, it just keeps him warm. Traffic. The cuffs, and it makes it look like I know what I'm talking about exactly. when it says opposing bases air, <laughs> air traffic talk. Nick need to go to bed. Just ask him. Yeah, if up. you need to go, uh, leave us, Nick. Please do, and uh, you know it's getting late. Oh, I can manage for another half hour. Okay. How long? How long we got? I don't know how about much longer. Forty-five minutes or something. Forty-five minutes, she says. I don't know if we want to go that I, long. I can manage. That. We I can go for another half an hour or so. Yeah. We'll make it a shorter yeah. show. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that you want to stay with us. Um, all right. So let's move over to, and thank you again, Nigel, for that question. And uh, yes, you were right. I think we all agree. Um, oh, you know, I mentioned earlier, we talked about the um, preliminary report on this uh, Austin Bergstrom incident with the uh, FedEx and the Southwest. Well, uh, R.D. Uh, Reimers sent in this feedback. He says, check out Austin Revisited revisited the quest for heroes on the avweb site slash newsletter. They reference an airline pilot friend who is critical of the actions of the FedEx pilots would be interested in the APG crew reaction to this. All right. So, um, from avweb, um, accident investigation by its very nature is requires second guessing. In fact, it's defined by second guessing based on disclosed factual information. Sometimes the findings are as black and white as these things can get, say a fuel exhaustion accident, a stall spin incident, or landing gear up. The nut behind the wheel catches the blame because no other culprits are in evidence. The recent loss of separation incident at Austin, loss of separation being the more clinical term than near disaster, will probably be a lot murkier in that context. An airline friend of mine is grinding me about an airline pilot friend of mine is grinding me about giving the FedEx pilots too much credit for saving the day. To spare you the slog through the video, the executive summary is that in RVR weather where the tower controller couldn't see the runway, he cleared a Southwest 737 for takeoff with the FedEx 76 on a three-mile final. The gap was apparently too tight, and although the Southwest flight acknowledged the inbound traffic, The tape appears to show that Southwest took 63 seconds to get on the runway and start their takeoff roll. The tape also suggests that the FedEx pilots figured out the sequence was too close and executed a go-around. In the process, they ordered the Southwest jet to abort its takeoff roll, evidently worried that it would climb into them as they flew the mist. The geometry suggests that wouldn't have happened. That's in parentheses. Hmm. Not sure I agree with that. My friend believes FedEx will get dinged for both what may have been a late go-around and for issuing an utterly non-standard command to another airplane. He's probably right on both counts, although the go-around point remains to be documented as does the, or does how the go-around was flown with regard to climb rate. Okay, just stopping here for a moment. I think when this was written, it was probably before the preliminary report and the fact that the FedEx first officer saw the Southwest jet and where they were on the runway. So that is an important point, I think. 
so going back to this, uh, this is the classic no good deed goes unpunished. His argument is that if FedEx may have saved the day by exercising good judgment on the go around, they should have done better by exercising it earlier, in which case there would have been no loss of separation and no evening news stories. Judgment. And rendered after the fact, it's always easier than doing it on the fly with seconds to decide. To me, this eliminates a level of expectation that most of us don't think about. And it's this. If someone screws up or someone else screws up, a pilot in command, are you on or as pilot in command, are you on the hook to see and figure out how to fix it? In a way, that's what the Austin incident is about. Here's a simple example in visual conditions. You're on short final and the airplane crosses the runway just as you approach the flare. In your judgment, judgment repeated for emphasis, there's not enough margin for you to go around. No, there's not enough margin, so you go around. Whether the controller cleared the airplane across is immaterial. You You judged it too tight. Are you right? Of course you are. I can't think of many, really any, circumstances where a go-around is wrong, even though another pilot in the same circumstance might continue because he or she judges it acceptable. And yes, this includes the insanely busy pattern at Oshkosh. And yes, controllers have been surprised by unexpected go-arounds, but they're not supposed to build sequences that don't allow for same. Now, freight the same situation. Freight? Now... I don't know if that's the right word here. Now, freight the same situation with low IMC, barely at minimums. Frame? Frame? Now, frame the situation. Yeah, maybe frame. Uh, The same situation with low IMC, barely at minimums. You're on final and you hear the controller clear a departure in front of you. There's an exception that the controller has allowed enough time for the runway separation ATC is required to provide. But absent the ability to see through the clag, are you expected to somehow sense the separation won't be adequate and act immediately by going around? Is that part of your pilot and command requirements? Would that be a reasonable judgment you're expected to make? I'd say no, although survival instinct has to figure into it. Uh, human error being ever-present. Separation is based on trust, and it's reasonable to depend on it. Most of us know enough about ATC to realize the scenario I painted above would never happen, but at Austin, it, par- it apparently did. What the NTSB and FAA will have to determine was whether it was reasonable to expect the FedEx pilots to surmise that the controller appeared to have messed up the sequencing with a too tight gap and that they were in the best position to resolve the conflict. My friend thinks this is true, but I'm not so sure. Uh, There were multiple responsibilities. The controller still retained authority to order a go-around to fix the egregious error it appears that he made. Southwest had the option of declining the takeoff had they paused to calculate the 767 would cover 2.4 miles in a minute. Neither of these uh, or those strike me as unreasonable. Regardless of where they began the go around and based on the tape, FedEx still seems to be the only one of the three actors with anything like situational awareness. I agree with that. There could be more going on in the background. We'll see. One interesting twist here is that the FedEx aircraft are equipped with FLIR. Uh, what is that called? Uh, FLIR. Um, What's that stand for? Um, forward-looking infrared forward-looking radar? Forward-looking infrared. infrared okay. yes. Which may or may not have been a factor. Uh, FedEx pilot, I know, 
says it's unlikely that it would have provided a clear picture in the conditions at Austin. The whole thing puts me in mind of that classic 1995 submarine thriller, Crimson Tide. Remember Jason uh, Robard's line at the review board after Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman got into a bloody brawl over destroying the earth? Here's the quote. You both created one hell of a mess. Just make it three instead of two, and you've got the immediate takeaway from this incident. Okay. Again, this was probably penned um, before we got the preliminary, pre- preliminary report regarding the fact that the uh, FedEx first officer actually saw the Southwest jet 1,000 to 1,500 feet down the runway when they were only 150 feet above the ground. So that probably changes a little bit of this. That would look... I mean, we talked about this already when we covered it in the the news, but that would look exceptionally close. And I think, you know, the the actions that they took, including the things that they said, part of their, you know, immediate surprise, startle response, you know, even knowing that it was probably tight on the separation, having listened to communications and, and building that mental or that situational awareness, that spatial map in their head of where everyone was. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know about dinging them yeah. for for saying something that maybe they should not have said. Um, we talked about it before, but self preservation kicks in a little bit there, you know. This picture we're showing right now, that the where the pappies are, those are pappies, right? Or is that the the? Uh, no, it looks like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that's the touchdown point, um, which is generally around fifteen hundred feet down. So you're in the situation here and you see a, a 737 right there on that part of the runway? Not a good feeling. No, that's not, that is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely that's see. That's a very good point, Jeff. That's about right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The um, interesting thing here is that um, we don't actually do that many go-arounds. We don't often end up in a position where we have to make this critical decision. Uh, it's very easily, if you can see for miles and you can see you, you see some, a situation building and you realise it's not going to work, to make an early decision to go around. But uh, in, low, in low visibility procedures, we're relying so much upon the air traffic controllers and we have to trust that they actually see this situation a lot more often than we do, and they should have built up a, a level of judgment that makes the situation safe. They should know their limits and what we can and can't do. Uh, obviously, we're the call of last call because uh, if if uh, you know if we see a situation that is an obvious mistake, then the decision is simple. But it wasn't the case here. I, I don't think the FedEx crew will be criticized at all uh i don't think that the southwest crew will necessarily be criticized but everyone could have helped the situation here um i'm not sure the fedex crew could have done much more but certainly Mm -hmm. their call to abort could have been better phrased and better placed uh and perhaps better worded whatever anyway um yeah the the main culprit here i'm i think we 
we'll, we'll see is the air traffic controller trying to squeeze uh, a departure in when there patently wasn't enough room. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, that'll be the result. I don't think anyone else, other than the delay in the uh, 737 crew getting off, uh, I, I don't even know that you can, factor. I mean, it's like we talked about earlier with that too, though. There's so many little things that could cause that yeah. pause, you know, a minute, 63 seconds sounds like a long time, but not if you're dealing with something unexpected that popped up right in nope. front of you. But on the other hand, he, he should be aware that he that there's can't a, be seen. There's yes, no ground yes. radar there. Yes. And he should have said something. If he's delayed on the runway, he yes. should say, uh, we're not rolling, give, I'll be another 10 seconds or something. Just Absolutely. to give the controller a, a clue. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. I could I could go on and on and on about this. Yeah, and other, uh, other thoughts that I've had related to it and, and stuff that I think about on a regular basis when I'm flying and the type of flying that I do. And um, all I'll say is that it's it's interesting sometimes to be the fly on the wall where you see things unfolding and knowing what your response is going to be in that situation, watching it happen. Um, but having yeah. to kind of watch it play out a little bit too, because that happens. It's sometimes. like me sitting in the back of the cockpit on a, uh, in a third pilot duty. Cause I've been called in to fill. And uh, you you can often see a situation building. That's guys exactly what I'm airplane. referring to. Yeah. <laughs> They pick it up eventually, but it's so they're so you know such a long delay. Whereas you're going, well, I can see this is going to go. This isn't going to work. You can see so much more when you're sitting back like that. Yeah, when you're you're the fly on the wall, or when you're the you know the Monday morning quarterback, it's a lot easier to Mm -hmm. to go. Well, how did how would that have ever happened? But when you're the the person in one of those roles with a more narrowed focus, it's that's how these things yeah. happen. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, quickly with number nine, I, I, I changed a little bit. Uh, sorry, uh, a little bit of an audible, uh, Liz. Um, Skylar wrote in and said, hello, I was wondering if you could tell me if there was an episode in which the crash was discussed, the Colgan Air Flight 3407. This was when I was still in high school and well before I had uh, a single thought about aviation. If nothing else, maybe the APG team could squeeze this into a future episode for discussion. Thank you again, and keep up the good work, Skylar from the Panhandle. And yeah, we have referred many, many times uh, since the show began uh, to this uh, incident, the Colgan uh, Air Flight uh, crash at uh, Buffalo, New York. Uh, but uh, this accident occurred the 12th of February. 2009. I did not start podcasting until the fall of 2009. And uh, I started off with the Catholic Pilot Podcast in September of 2009. And then I rebranded it in uh, May, May 2011 to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. So I don't think we've actually had a specific episode where we just focused on this incident. Um, and there's not been a plain tale on it. No, my knowledge. no. Yep. But, um, yeah, maybe that's an idea, Skylar. Maybe we should do that some at some point because it's definitely one of those incidents that has caused all kinds of 
changes in seminal the way we incident. do things. Yes, a seminal incident for sure. Okay. Um, thank you, Scott, for that uh, question. Um, l- number 10, uh, Texas Anlashock uh, says, uh, another something on Quora. It's amusing. I had to share. Quora is one of those websites where people ask questions about things and then supposedly knowledgeable people will answer these questions. And uh, the question is, um, not trying to be rude, but why do all American fighter jets look the same? Now, I'm assuming (laughs) that this question is not regarding American fighter jets all the way in the past, but maybe just our current what what do they call fourth and fifth generation or fifth and sixth generation? Fifth, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I don't know what generation we're on anymore. But um, the article can uh, has a bunch of um, pictures of the F twenty two Raptor the F, yeah, and the F thirty five. Sorry, don't know why um, it's doing that. I don't know. It doesn't okay, matter. There we go. It works. And the F thirty five, and. They have a similar plane form uh, shape, and uh, their profile is very similar as well. Of course, one's a two-engined jet, and the other is a one-engined jet um, with the same sort of vertical stabilizer at their – what is that, an anhedral or a dihedral? Oh, what, what's that? <laughs> I'm not sure I recognize <laughs> that fighter. The, cap- the caption says, We're sorry, wrong there. picture. Oh, sorry, wrong picture. <laughs> Um, but it looks similar to the uh, F-35, I have to say. But, Someone thinks um, they look like penguins. Yeah. So oh, there's an F-16 in the in the background of this one, and we're showing yeah. the uh, front end of the uh, F-35. So I thought that a um, our resident uh, fighter pilot might be able to shed some light on why these things, at least the latest generations of fighters, look extremely similar. Well, a lot of it has to do with uh, their stealth qualities. Uh, There's only certain uh, features that will give an aircraft uh, a a modicum of stealth. Um, And the arrest is really around just the basic aerodynamic design of an aircraft that's supposed to be able to cruise uh, possibly supersonic in military power. So it has to have quite a low uh, supersonic drag profile. Um, uh, it's interesting. Um, aircraft design often goes in um, the latest trend. It, it's you know you, there was a trend of uh, having uh, variable geometry wings uh, that died out with the Tomcat and probably a bit too late with the Tornado. Um, and then they went to deltas with, uh, you know, the Raphael, the Griffin, and the uh, um, the uh, Eurofighter, which uh, became the Lightning II. Um, no, that Lightning II, that's the F-35, sorry. What are we yeah, whatever it? they the, call uh, it. Typhoon. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we, we moved on to the next generation, the next set of requirements. And uh, there are only certain designs that will fulfill a, a brief. And uh, they're 
going to be quite similar. And once more, once a designer sees another country's efforts, they go, oh, I wonder why he's done that. And when you look at Russian aircraft, they're particularly good, Russian uh, designers, they're particularly good at picking up what everyone else in the world is doing. Chinese too. And saving a lot of time and effort and R&D by copying them. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese have tended to do that as well. So uh, when someone comes up with a good design that works and provides all the requirements, it's quite common that it gets copied. So, uh, yeah, that's probably a few of the reasons. But I'm by no means an expert in this field. So... I'd love to hear uh, the views of someone else who knows more than me. Nobody knows more than you about that, but (laughs) I would just kind of add to the fact that when I first saw the question, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you look at a F4 Phantom 2, I think, Um, was it that the actual name, the Phantom 2? Yeah, yeah, F4 Uh, Phantom 2. Compared to, let's say, I don't know, an F16 or maybe a Crusader or uh, a six, you know, they're, they're not thing alike. They're completely different oh, looking very, very true. airplanes. I mean, so I don't know the person that was questioning. I'm assuming they just mean like today's fighters. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right because uh, we there, there were some wacky designs out there with variable incidence wings. Mm-hmm. You know, the wing that used yeah, to jack up and jack down. They had the Navy jet. Yep. Yeah, that looked exactly like, what? right. What is and that? Uh, some people thought that deltas were the way to go. But uh, they, they're very high drag. You need a lot of power when you're maneuvering a delta uh, around. So other people had other ideas. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they've not many of them have actually fought in real-time battles uh, because, you know, we haven't really had a modern jet uh, battle except perhaps in the Middle East. Uh, and um, so we haven't really had a chance to really compare in actual combat conditions a lot of these aircraft. So a lot of it is still an unknown. Yeah. I have a confession. I think I'm very much like, I think it's Captain Al. They kind of all just look like green, noisy things, and I can't <laughs> identify a single one of them based on <laughs> because you're not you could put them all the like in a lineup. And yeah. I didn't, no. I didn't well, if it's black and white, it's a <laughs> And they all look like penguins to me. There you go. <laughs> A lot of that is uh, area rule, uh, so that you reduce uh, the transonic drag problems. Uh, That's Uh, why they're fat in the middle. To be fair, I I haven't ever tried to learn the differences between any of them. But I think it's just because they're all pretty clever. Don't care. Jingles doesn't care. Jingles doesn't (laughs) care. Stephanie doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, I think we have always kind of had these like pods of airplanes and design characteristics moving along you know like if you look at if you compare an f-18 and f-15 there are some they're they're not the same airplane but there's definitely some similarities to kind of how the inlets are shaped and uh, the general wing plan form is and even if you go back like uh, captain jeff you're mentioning the f-8 you know like the ra-5 the f-8 the a-7 those are all kind of like high wing single tail tubby looking airplanes <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I always kind of thought that that was like, as we continually learn new things and it kind of drives our design optimization into a certain area, you know, then all the airplanes end up looking very similar because that's the most optimum that we can make. 
the design based on our current current tool set or the government that comes up with a design i mean the a, a requirement that we need you to make something that will be really good at this yeah, yeah. that's a good point jeff because uh, so many of those are the designs are driven by the government's you know latest idea as to what they want to have in the front line i mean you look at the the, the first uh the 117 the nighthawk mm -hmm. um that was not really didn't really take advantage of the computerized designs we have now nowadays nowadays for stealth so it looks very boxy it's a mm -hmm. it's like a volvo <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible looking airplane but it, it performed a great job. But uh, nowadays, of course, they can make them look much sexier. It's a it's a great airplane to make a Halloween costume out of because you can make it very easily with cardboard boxes. <laughs> yes. And, of course, Tim Van Ram. You ever heard of that guy? Uh, he says uh, he's in our live audience. Another design factor is will the chicks dig it? Oh, See, this is a, that's an argument that I <laughs> that I get into regularly is that I, I think that the F-86 is like the most elegant looking jet we've made. And I just feel like we're going down this path of, as we add performance, we're removing, um, removing visual appeal to our airplanes. But mm -hmm. I'm in the minority in that based on the, the people that I talk yeah. to. <laughs> the people that are looking at the requirements for fighting a successful war are probably going, well, I don't care what it looks like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I agree with that. I'm just saying like when you – when an F-35 flies by, an F-86 mm -hmm. flies by, I'm like, man, the F-86 looks really that good. Awesome but I, I don't you're think it's the aesthetics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we all agree with that. Okay, finally, uh, we're going to address uh, this from our good friend uh, and uh, voiceover for our intros every week, Radio Roger. He's a real uh, radio and television um, celebrity in the New York market. Uh, he sent in some audio feedback regarding the LaGuardia Expressway visual approach runway 31. Greetings, APG crew and listeners. Driving along the Van Wyck Expressway, I'm always surprised by planes making a tight turn before landing at LaGuardia's runway 31. A little research turned up a map of the Expressway visual approach, which is much more curved than I even realized. In fact, at the beginning, it looks like an approach to runway four before it starts veering to the right and then to the left. So why this S-shaped pattern? Is it because of a conflict with JFK traffic? And is this unusual? I always assume that commercial flights are lined up with their runways miles away from the airport. Does this present challenges or risks? And my last question. It's called a visual approach. Does that mean there's a different approach under instrument-only conditions, or is runway 31 shut down altogether? Well, I'll sit back and wait for your wisdom. This is Radio Roger, over and out. Okay, well, I'm not sure you're going to get any wisdom from us, but uh, we can kind of help a Jeff little is, bit. Jeff is the LaGuardia expert. Though, I, so. I used to be. It's been years since I've flown into LaGuardia, but I love this approach. This is my favorite approach in the LaGuardia. And uh, there's the uh, approach plate that Liz has uh, set up for us, the uh, Expressway Visual Runway 31. And yes, Roger, you are correct. Uh, you'll see in the bottom right-hand corner of that you, the uh, uh, John F. Kennedy International Airport. And when 
Uh, LaGuardia is landing because the winds are out of the northwest and favors runway 31 for landing. Uh, Kennedy is also landing runway 31 and, um, you know, it, or they could be landing other runways as well. But yes, it, the, those two airports are very close together. And so the expressway visual is designed to stay out of the way of the John F. Kennedy International Airspace as much as possible. And uh, it is um, a very, very fun approach. And uh, you asked whether or not that that was the um, only, uh, like, if you can only do it in visual conditions. Yes, the expressway visual, it, you have to have, uh, I think it's 3005, I think, are the weather men's. I have to look it up, actually. Um, but uh, there are other approaches when the weather is below visual meteorological conditions. Uh, where there's a, I, from what I remember when I used to fly in there all the time, there was a localizer approach to runway three one. There's probably an RNAV as well. I'm looking it up right now as we speak. Let me look at the approaches to runway three one. And right now they're showing the LOC runway three one. They have some RNAVs, uh, three RNAV approaches to runway three one. And of course the expressway visual and, um, so, yes, there are ways. They don't shut down runway 31 when it's in instrument meteorological conditions. Um, and uh, it's it's a fun approach. Keeps it nice and tight in. It does, as you said, look like it. you're coming in for runway 4. You hit the tanks or the dials, I think it's called, is the fixed dials. But there are, you see those little tanks. It says twin white tanks. It used to be they were painted in a different color, but I guess they're white tanks now. And then you hang a right and you follow the expressway, uh, the Long Island Expressway, an actual road. And you descend and you hang a uh, left around the north end of the Flushing Meadow Park and the uh, World's Fair and all that. You can see all that stuff clearly when you're doing the approach. And then you hang it around the uh, uh, city field, the uh, uh, what used to be called Shea Stadium for the Mets. And you can also see the uh, where the uh, what is it called the uh, the open the the tennis U.S. U.S. US open. open. I, I forgot what the official name for that is, but you can see all that, that complex part of flushing. Yeah, and then you just US roll tennis out, Center. and uh, and it's a, it's a very short approach uh, to that point. That's why it's so much fun. And uh, coincidentally, and this is like kismet, a good friend of ours, uh, a, a part of our APG community. Uh, uh, Graham Fig sent in or sent me some video of the expressway visual. Now he was not flying it. He is a corporate pilot, but he was sitting as a passenger on the left side of the airplane behind the wing of a, uh, Acme, uh, Airbus looks like a 320 or something. And, uh, he's filming this on the visual approach. So Liz, why don't you go ahead and put that video up and we can watch. Do I have the video? Yeah, it's in the... Oh, um, yes, I do. Sorry. Yeah. There we go. Expressway visual approach runway 31. And uh, we turned... Well, we can't hear the music anyway, um, but he's got... Uh, uh, talking about the boy from New York City. <laughs> it's got some great music uh, in the in the, in the the background. I think Man Manhattan transfer. So he's showing the uh, visual... Uh, 3-1 approach plate and um, we'll soon see some uh, footage 
outside of the uh, window that he's taking for us. And it gives you a, a really good idea of what it's like to fly this approach. It's lots of fun. Here we go. You see the left wingtip of this Airbus, and that's part of the World's Fair in Flushing Meadow Park. Yeah, there's, the globe. there's the globe. There's the globe. And uh, soon you're going to start seeing the, yeah, there's the PGA, I mean, the, the tennis. Tennis open, Center, yeah. Yeah, the Tennis Arthur Center. Arthur Ashe Stadium. Arthur Ashe Stadium. And then, of course, there's the, uh, what used to be, be called uh, Shea Stadium. And in the background, just above the wingtip, you can see Manhattan uh, Island and the uh, and New York City and the skyscrapers. And over there, there's, a, again, the baseball stadium, Shea Stadium. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, there was a little glimpse of the runway here. They were just aligning with uh, runway 301. And it's uh, right here, it looks like it is a nice, lazy approach, but uh, it's quite intense. It's a very short final, not quite as short as the uh, river visual at uh, Washington National. But uh, it's still one of the more challenging visual approaches. And then we're coming in, and now you can see on the left, uh, below the wingtip there, the terminals of the uh, LaGuardia International Airport. And here we go. We're about to touch down. And there. We're on the ground. The spoilers are up. And uh, it's going into reverse. And shortly we'll be pulling off to the left. There's a hole in the engine. Oh, there's a hole. <laughs> You're right, Liz. There's a hole in the engine and also in the wing. This is an emergency <laughs> situation. And uh, he's going to pull off on a taxiway Papa, I believe, which is just shy of where the intersection of the other runway is, the 90-degree runway. And, Jeff, uh, I, yeah. I noticed there's a very good, well-laid-out ground track to follow uh, down the expressway and round City Field, you know, over Flushing Meadow Park to line up. Um, but unlike the Canazi approach into JFK, uh, there, apart from being dials at two and a half thousand, there's no height guidance at all. No. Now, on this one, as opposed to what you're just referring to and going into Kennedy, they're uh, in, built into most of the flight management system computers is a, a vertical path. So, and we have the little vertical football, we, I like to call it, that kind of shows you where the descent path is calculated. And so you kind of have some guidance all the way around for your descent path. But I don't think you have that with the, um, the Canarsi or the RNAV to uh, well, runways. Well, the Canarsi RNAV, you would. Okay. Oh, uh, in an Airbus, it would give you an artificial glide path. But in the days when we did it on just the VOR, mm -hmm. We used VOR DME. We used to uh, fly, you know, using the height per mile. There used to be a little chart telling you what height you're supposed right. to be at. Recommended altitudes. To give you some guidance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this one, um, maybe a while ago, it had the same kind of a guidance where, you know, at this point you should be at this altitude. But um, now with our modern avionics and flight management systems, um, it, you know, you, you, it gives you, it's not an RNAV approach, but it does give you that guide, that vertical guidance. Interesting. And, uh, okay. and I've always, Thanks. and I've, I, I've always flown it. Now this one kind of did what I see a lot of people doing and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way they interpret how that should be flown. But I've always 
kept it on the higher side and made it more of a rounded turn to final instead of an angled turn to final like this one we just witnessed and um and uh kept it a little bit on the higher side coming in over it and then just dropping that altitude as necessary to get on the glide path toward the toward the end but that's just my technique of flying the expressway visual i don't like i don't know about you but i don't in a transport category aircraft i don't like getting down low too early and then putting a lot of power in having your pitch their deck angle up and kind of dragging it in um and until you reach that descent point for the glide path and coming down i like to keep it all nice and easy or like the same glide path all the way around you know what i mean um keeping my energy options available to me but uh, i'm not criticizing the way this person flew the approach but that seems like most of the people do that because i'm i've watched many times waiting for takeoff i'm only three one watching people coming in i'm thinking wow they're really dragging that in and i've always kept it kind of a constant descent all the way around but cool yeah but you know i the last time i did that was the last time i'll ever do that in my career and that was many years ago because we haven't been flying into LaGuardia in uh, the Mad Dog or the 717 in quite a number of years. So uh, that's pretty much the only thing I miss about that airport, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, the terminals are. You know, I was so excited, Liz, when she said, well, it's all been rebuilt now and it's all really nice. And so there were all this hype about the new LaGuardia airport. And I finally asked somebody as they had flown up there recently, I said, so, did they? What did they do with the runways and the taxiways? And they said nothing. That's all the same as it was before. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> the the terminals themselves are really nice. They are very nice, yeah, but beautiful. As far as I'm concerned, the stuff that really is important to me, they haven't changed anything. So, I don't know how much there is that you could change. It's a pretty small. Yeah, there's really nothing of an you airport. Can do, is there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what I was thinking that they could do. <laughs> Like maybe extend the runways another couple thousand feet uh, into the water. More? Yeah, Rikers Island. You have to move that out of yeah, the way. No, that we prison, don't need that anymore because it's kind of in the way. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's a great way to end the show. Thank you very much, Graham, for sending that in. And I, I told him, I said, "Can I use that video because this is perfect?" Because we had some other feedback uh, regarding this uh, expressway visual approach, and uh, he said, "Oh yeah." Let's do that. Okay, so it's time to wrap it up. Let's talk about the uh, website, AirlinePilotGuy.com, which is a place you can go to learn more, a lot more about our podcast and the community, which is the most important part of all this is the community. And you can learn more about the um, plane tales. Captain Nick goes and puts extra information and pictures and everything else on the plane tales. Uh, Definitely a a work of a labor of love. And uh, we have... Like people that read these things called books, which I think you have to open up in their paper and you have to read books. words. Bifurcation. And stuff. Yeah, bifurcation. Oh, Tiffany, uh, our librarian, Tiffany added that one that you uh, uh, requested, uh, Captain Nick. Uh, oh, Sam Dawson cool. and his uh, relative. Yeah. Um, so that we have that. Uh, we have information about merchandise and. Gosh, so much more. There's a lot of stuff over there. Head over there to airlinepilotguy.com and check it out. And we're also on social media. Stephanie's going to tell us about that. 
I will. We're going to start it off today with Twitter. We are uh, at APG Crew, and you can find all of our individual Twitter handles pinned to the top of that page. If you um, want to post lengthier topics and comments, you can head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Join our community there. And don't forget to check out our Instagram. I think Nick is still posting his um, lovely uh, images. Well, no, I've got control of my Instagram. Uh, no, he's posting images <laughs> of the again. ISIS. <laughs> Oh, well. Yeah. There's there's some stuff for you to peruse on our Instagram. We're also <laughs> APG crew there. And, uh, you know, that's kind of just scratching the surface. If you want to take the deep dive into the shower with hello. No, 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 maybe not. Maybe Who it's a little personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I'm anyway, not... he's going to tell you about Slack. You know, I think he is. Hello. Hello. Tell us about Slack. I know, I know. We're used to that. Come on over here and oh, how many times have I told you? Put a towel on, please. Okay, come on over here and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you very much, Hillel. We always appreciate you telling us about Slack. Um, turn the what you doing now? Oh yeah, Delta P. <laughs> the microphone's still on. Hello. Okay. You know we haven't had a good Delta P story. In we a have while. not. No, I started. Yeah, it's yeah. go through phases. Yeah, I think I need to find. Let's see if this works. Delta P. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. And, yeah, that's terrible. This. <laughs> Well, you know, just one of a few minor disappointments in uh, the the technical (laughs) aspect of this particular episode. Anyway, uh, we also want to thank our uh, producer, uh, Liz, for all the hard work that she does and the slides. And it's Liz's day. Did you see all those uh, fancy slides that she did? This uh, We're doing something new. And yes, uh, just, uh, what was it, uh, yesterday? Yesterday, yesterday. important day for Liz. Her birthday. She's 29 years old again. Yeah. Anytime. <laughs> right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. My so pleasure. thank you for thank everything. you, Liz. And uh, we love you, and we love uh, all of you out there listening, honestly. And uh, we do appreciate the fact that uh, you uh, keep us motivated to keep doing this show. And uh, until next time, we're wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Tailwinds, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Talk to you next time. So long. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.
used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly away 